Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Plot Devices. We are here once again. I am one of your hosts, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing today? I'm uncaffeinated, but I'm having a great morning, Brandon. We're going to have to drive you to the hospital sometime. All right. <laughs> I'm already scared. <laughs> Samantha Ingravaya is the third voice joining us today. Sam, how are you today? Hey, I'm good. Also uncaffeinated. May regret it later, but we'll find out. For now, I have this boba tea, and I'm happy about that, but ready to go and excited. I'm a little jealous. I was actually really craving boba yesterday. I wasn't able to get to a boba shop. Oh, hopefully later today. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully that, that'll be my treat after this. Let's actually hop into it today. We've got a bit of a jam-packed show. We thought it was going to be slower, and then everything just dropped in the last 48 hours. So it's going to be a very interesting day for us. Uh, reviews, TV, a lot of TV stuff, actually. But let's actually get to some news, which implies a lot of trailer news. The first and foremost, Hawkeye. As if you didn't have enough MCU Disney Plus stuff already, we have a Hawkeye series coming out uh, just in a few months, and we got the first trailer earlier this week. Uh, Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton stars alongside Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, an expert archer who becomes Barton's apprentice, while the two deal with consequences of Barton's time as Ronin during the events of Avengers Endgame. So this takes place post-blip, if you were wondering. Uh, Bridgerton's Jonathan Igla will serve as the uh, showrunner of the, the uh, six-episode series, I should say. It will also star Florence Pugh, who is reprising her role as Yelena Belova from uh, Black Widow this past summer, as well as Alakwa Cox, uh, Vera Farmiga, Zal McLarnon, and Tony Dalton. Uh, weekly on Disney+, Plus, beginning on November 24th, Sam, I want to get started with you. What have your expectations been for this Hawkeye series? Because we're getting sort of the dual Hawkeyes in uh, Clint Barton and Kate Bishop for this. What have your expectations been based on it? And did this trailer raise or decrease them? Yeah, so I I honestly didn't have very many expectations. The only one was um, uh, to have Yelena in in the series because it was heavily teased, um, spoiler alert, with the end credits scene uh, for Black Widow. So that was my only expectation. Otherwise, didn't know much else. Um, I'm hoping that it goes more into Hawkeye as a character because I feel like there are a lot of situations, you know, where he's not the most popular MCU hero, unfortunately. And it's things like, oh, yeah, we love Hulk. We love... Uh, like Captain America and Iron Man, but then it's like, and there's Hawkeye. Hawkeye shows up. And so I'm just hoping that, you know, this this show gives him more respect. And I'm also just really excited to see Jeremy Renner interact with Haley Steinfeld because I think she's going to be phenomenal in the show as well. I, I don't know. It, we I feel like she's such an underutilized actress out there. And this will, I think, give her a really good chance and some visibility that other people might not have seen her in yet. Yeah, any of you out there who are interested in comics, I know you probably don't like Hawkeye. I know there's very few of us out there. Go read the the uh, Matt Fraction, David Aja run. You will not regret it. It's so much fun. There's a golden retriever who delivers pizza. Go read it. It's awesome. Um, and this trailer, which I loved, looks like it's basing it on a lot of that. Like we're going to see, you know, Clint is kind of, you know, the ground hero of the MCU. Hi, Spider-Man. Where are you? Um, we're seeing like New York as kind of a more, you know, vibrant character sort of piece. We've never really seen New York as far as, you know, very intimate aside from maybe the netflix series with daredevil and hell's kitchen all that so i'm excited to see that Haley steinfeld i've actually had discussions with people this past week who are like oh i, I don't think of Haley steinfeld as an actress and i'm like have you not seen true grit or edge of 17 or even like the pitch perfect movies like she is a tremendous actress and i remember when she got announced as kate i was like that's perfect don't do any just do that and i i don't know what they're going to wind up doing with clint as a character i think this brings up a lot of questions of you know, where is his place in the MCU going forward? Because he has always been the kind of guy who's like, I'll help out, but like, I have a family to deal with. Like, I've got other bigger things going on. So I don't know if this means, you know, this is foreshadowing his death. I think it's more passing the mantle on to Kate Bishop as in the comics, which I would be all for. Um, I'm loving the idea of, you know, again, spoiler, Yelena is going to pop up in this. I cannot wait to see how that plot line from Black Widow turns out. Uh, and it just seems like a lot of fun. It seems like one of those kind of, you know, 
way too influenced by diehard Christmas movies where it's just going to be absolutely bombastic. And you know what? I am totally for that. So count me in on this. Noah, what did you think about this? I was happy to hear you mention Edge of 17 because I watched that this year for the first time. I already appreciated Haley Steinfeld even uh, in her music career. Uh, but watching her in Edge of 17, um, I just really appreciated like what she can bring to a character that uh, I hadn't seen before because I was only familiar with um, her role in Pitch Perfect. Well, seeing the Marvel uh, Hawkeye trailer, I was like, ooh, this is a buddy comedy I didn't expect because um, call me... I don't know what you can call me, but I was just running with the assumption that Hawkeye was going to be based around Kate Bishop's being his, his child. So I was like, Oh yeah. I don't know why I told myself like for so long that Kate was going to be his daughter. And I don't know if that ties into the comics or if I just told myself, like if I convinced myself one morning and then I just ran with that for the rest of my memory. Um, So correct me if I'm wrong on there and tell me like, you know, what you know from the comics that you think might even bleed into this. In the comics, Kate and Clint are not related. They're not. Okay. Thank you. So yeah, that must've been something that I just like maybe speculated on that. I just ran with. So um, Haley Seinfeld, Jeremy Renner, definitely happy to get like a a buddy, uh, buddy comedy from those two. Clint Barton as a character has kind of, been absent from a lot of the mcu activity i mean he's back for endgame but you're right like he's kind of the retired hero he's like i'm i'm you know i have my own priorities uh with my family and now especially that they're back i wonder how interested he's going to be in this vigilante who is using his um using his alias uh or at least it looks that way because she has that whole get up on that he was wearing in um in endgame when uh, black widow went and got him so um you know, the actors, um, happy to see them. And then it, it taking place around Christmas and holiday season. I think I'm just super happy to see because I was watching this and I go, Oh, this, this reminds me of the, the movie Elf. So I just love seeing Christmas in New York City. Um, and if they're going to be having a lot of action, which I mean, this, this teaser trailer or sorry, this is the first official trailer. This looks like it's going to be action heavy. And I like, uh, the, su- the surprise that comes out of, uh, Kate Bishop from Haley Seinfeld, which she's like, are there arrows that are like more dangerous than these explosive ones that I'm, that I'm shooting? So I think it's going to be interesting to see how he gears her up for the stakes that the Marvel universe faces. So like how big are the evils in this series? Um, are they going to get anywhere close to like uh, the cosmic characters or um, like how close can this get to our field of view when it comes to the Marvel universe? Um, I can't wait to watch it. I think it's perfect time of the year to have a new Disney plus series and um, taking place around Christmas or in the holiday season. Can't wait to watch it. You know, Hawkeye announced for November. That's kind of going to be our ending slate for 2021. I will add, just based on your point, the dynamic between Kate and Clint, I'm curious if this will be, again, I mentioned Peter Parker kind of jokingly, but I hope that the MCU post-blip starts to delve into characters like Peter, like Yelena, like Kate, who essentially grew up and, you know, formed their cohesive members in the era post-Iron Man. Like, they don't know a time before, you know, the MCU became a sprawling superhero mecca, so to speak. So I'm curious if, you know, Kate kind of, you know, looks at it with more of a glamorous angle of just like, oh, yeah, like it's beating down bad guys and shooting arrows. And Clint's like, no, like we face like gods like this is serious <laughs> business. And just wait until they run into like a variant or until they get into conversations that have to do with the multiverse. Like, I feel like these are two characters who will just be uh, th- their brains are just going to melt at the thought of like reality shifting in front of them. Uh, maybe some, maybe not so much Hawkeye um, because he's been taken over by Loki before, but yeah, these are characters that are just going to be 
blindsided if something like that uh, it occurs throughout the show. And Yelena, I can't wait to see uh, Florence Pugh back in the MCU. I, I loved her. She was astonishing in Black Widow. Yeah, I, th- I think we're in agreement. She was the best part of Black Widow. Of course. All right, let's move on from that. Also dropping this week, the full West Side Story trailer. We, of course, got uh, the teaser back during uh, Oscar time this previous year. Now we have the full trailer for Steven Spielberg's new adaptation. Read on Good Morning America. It's gotten a lot of positive buzz so far. Gives us a better look at stars Rachel Zegler and uh, Ansel Elgort as Maria and Tony. Star-crossed lovers caught in the middle of a gang war between the Sharks and Jets in 1950s New York, of course, based on the iconic musical of the same name, and the 1951 film Tony Kushner, who collaborated on Spielberg on Munich and Lincoln, wrote the script on this. It also includes uh, Ariana DeBose, David Alvarez, Corey Stoll, and Rita Moreno, who, of course, starred in the uh, 1950. Uh, in the 1961 adaptation, I should say. West Side Story joins a host of other musical adaptations this year, including Warner Brothers in the Heights, Amazon's Everybody Talking About Jamie, as well as the upcoming Dear Evan Hansen from Universal and Tick, Tick, Boom for Netflix. Uh, West Side Story is still set for a theatrical release on December 10th, coinciding with the 60th anniversary of that original uh, 1961 project. Sam, I want to get over to you because I know that you're a big fan of West Side Story. What did you think of this trailer compared to the full teaser? And uh, what are your expectations for the film? I'm really excited. I was excited to see more than just the Oscar teaser. And so I, um, I don't know. I, I just like that we're getting a closer look at the cinematography and um, what they plan on doing with each of the cast members. And so I think it's really exciting. I, um, I am keeping my expectations low just in case, because sometimes for me, as much as I love musicals, I feel like sometimes the musical movies can be hit or miss, but I do have faith in Steven Spielberg as, you know, like the director here. And I am really, I'm just really excited to see what happens. And I I did see West Side Story just a, like quite a while back, actually, it might've been, more, it's definitely more than five years ago I saw it live and that was actually the first time I'd seen West Side Story and I have good memories of seeing it with some friends that I made in college um, but it's uh, yeah it, I, I'm really excited to see this adaptation and how it might differ from the original movie too um, and so yeah I, I, that's pretty much all I have for it. <laughs> Fun fact I was um, in a production of West Side Story here uh, at Valley Youth Theater in downtown Phoenix. So in 2017, I was part of the cast. I played as Chino. So he's one of the sharks. And this, this story um, has a special place in my heart because of that fact. So I was amazed. I, I can't wait to um, see more from what Steven Spielberg's West Side Story has to offer. I follow Rachel Zegler um on twitter and she's just the best to follow like she's so awesome um and she's hilarious too she's kind of like geeks out in the same way that fans do over like these high profile celebrities that um she interacts with and then ansel elgort um baby driver i love baby driver i don't know how you two feel about baby driver but um i'm a little familiar with his music career like i have a couple songs saved by him um and i definitely believe in him as a singer uh so i i want those duets to just sound beautiful and i kind of i've already like imagined that they will um when i was in theaters recently for you know for what for whichever release i had seen the teaser for west side story and just that shot of the sharks versus the jets on that on the court um or alleyway in new york city um and you see their shadows uh i'm reminded of like this is a story that's supposed to center around like these high school kids pretending or you know adopting these personas that are so much older than where they are in their lives so i think that's the biggest 
the biggest thing that I want to see from this film is that maybe in the original, they all just looked so much older. So um, in this movie, I definitely want to see like the, the kids come out um, because it's a dark show knowing that this is just a lot of um, young gangs. Uh, and then it's the story of like Romeo and Juliet. And it totally feels like a tragedy. When you watch the trailer, you get that, that dreadful feeling that there is something looming around the corner. But I know that the voices are going to be just, they're going to blow us out the park. So uh, can't wait to see what Chino does in this one, because I want to see if I can live up to uh, his caliber. You know, this is going to be an amazing uh, year for musicals. The fact that you listed them all out right now just makes my ears ring. I'm a musical guy, so I'll be checking into all of these and West Side Stories on the list. I should add that uh, Chino is being played by a newcomer, Josh Andres Rivera although probably we'll have nothing on our very own Marcus uh, Noah Guzman. So <laughs> that's right. I'll give him his run for money. A run for his money. <laughs> Spielberg, why don't you call? Again, massive Steven Spielberg nerd. Like, I think he's one of maybe the top five greatest directors of all time. But I will put the caveat on there as much as anyone. He has been woefully inconsistent in the last decade in my eyes. Like, for every, you know, Adventures of Tintin, there is a Ready Player One, which I did not love. So I will completely acknowledge that, you know, Spielberg now... I will acknowledge is, you know, a bit inconsistent for some people, and I am one of them. However, this trailer is awesome. Um, I know very little about the original. Just, you know, again, forgive my ignorance, but, like, the story looks compelling. The setting looks great. The production design looks stellar. Um, it gave me a lot of vibes of the um, of the marketing for the 2018 Star is Born with uh, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. As far as just the trailer goes, I know that uh, Jenny's Kaminsky has a very distinct visual style, and I think that film is taking more from that than we realize. Um, but, again, this... This felt like a, you know, big, uplifting Spielberg spectacle musical. I cannot wait to see what Rachel Zegler can do with her, perform- uh, with her performance. I'll admit, Ansel Elgort, I've, I've heard some things that have made me kind of go, okay, maybe not him. But you know what? He's an incredibly talented performer. I'm sure he'll do great in this. So but count me in on this. It's going to be a great holiday release. I have to watch the original. Just to add... Um... I'm having a whispering conversation with Sam. I just wanted to ask her uh, while we're recording. Sam, what's your, uh, what are some of your favorite songs that you can't wait to hear uh, with this new West Side Story? Yeah, I'm, I'm super basic. So I honestly really like either America or Tonight. Um, so I'm excited to see what, uh, how, they, they, how they cover those songs. How about you, Noah? Uh, tonight's always been special because that's the quartet. So that's the one where you have so many layering voices um, when it comes to uh, what characters are involved in that song. So tonight is up there for me. Um, but I actually love uh, a boy like that and I feel pretty. So those are, those are two that I can't wait to see. Oh, I love, I feel pretty. I forgot so, about that one. <laughs> yes. Um, I just can't wait to hear these voices. And then Rita Moreno is going to come back. Is that what you said, Brandon? So, um, seeing her again will just be a pleasure because I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to watch the YouTube video of her and, um, oh, I can't remember the actor's name, but them both singing uh, America. They they keep it, uh, just fun fact, they keep it all women, uh, just the female cast members for America in the production. I, I don't know if it's, the, if it's the original film because I'm not sure if it was remade before, but they do it where it's like the the shark men and then the shark women are all singing um, so it'll be interesting to see how they do that in this version. All right, moving on to our third official trailer for the day. Uh, hopefully the last one we've gotten to a lot of trailers today. Nightmare Alley. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is back uh, with his newest project. Uh, it's not Pinocchio. That got pushed to next year, and I'm still very salty about it. This is instead 
Nightmare Alley uh, for Fox Searchlight, or should I just say Searchlight for now. This is the second adaptation of William Lindsay Gershom's novel of the same name following the 1947 version. And we just got the teaser trailer this week. It looks very trippy. Bradley Cooper will star as Stan Carlyle, an ambitious carny who meets a mysterious psychiatrist, Dr. Lilith Ritter, played by Kate Blanchett, uh, both of whom are in their first collaborations with Del Toro. It will also include Del Toro mainstays uh, Richard Jenkins, who is, of course, in uh, Shape of Water, got uh, nominated for an Oscar in that, and Ron Perlman, who has to be in every Del Toro project known to man, uh, as well as Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Rooney Mara, Clifton Collins Jr., Mary Steenburgen, and David uh, Strathairn. A uh, fun fact, also part of the cast is Romina Power, the daughter of the late Hollywood icon uh, Tyrone Power, who featured in the 1947 version. So it's keeping it all in the family for a little bit. Uh, Nightmare Alley is set to hit theaters exclusively on December 17th. Uh, Sam, I want to go to you first. Have you any uh, experience with the uh, Nightmare Alley book or the previous adaptation and uh, your thoughts on Del Toro's next project? Yeah, I haven't had any experience with any of the books or anything like that. So for me, this is brand new. I'm coming in with fresh eyes and I am really excited about it. In Guillermo del Toro, we trust. And I also really appreciate the cast. The cast is stacked, guys. I mean, between like you have like Bradley Cooper, anything creepy with Tony Collette in it is a win for me because she's the best. So <laughs> I also, you know, I, I think that this cast is going to be phenomenal. Richard Jenkins as well. Like, I mean, there are just so many people I could go on and on. Um, it looks super eerie. Like, I, I, I'm, I have no idea what to expect from it. It looks like a thriller. And so, um, you know, again, coming in with those fresh eyes, I'm just ready for anything and excited about it. And the, the cinematography looks great, too. I'm always a huge fan of that. When I look at movies, I always point that out. Because um, for me, sometimes that can make or break a movie. And yeah, it just looks really, really great with those dark tones in each of the shots. So we'll see what happens. It looks like it's going to be wild. And I can imagine this movie falling apart quickly and i don't mean in a bad way i mean it in terms of like the plot i think things will unravel very quickly whatever that might be so yeah Noah, how about you uh always been a fan of guillermo del toro since pan's labyrinth i was shown that as a kid scarred by the thing with eyes on his hands the pale um, man the pale man and from there uh just always been kept keeping up with uh guillermo del toro's work even the stuff that he produces so you know i'm already uh we talked about this last episode i'm already um planning my ticket purchases for antlers. Can't wait for that one to drop. Uh, I was, I can appreciate the fact that the trailer reveals nothing about the plot. You know, you'd really have to dive into uh, the previous iterations of nightmare alley or look into the story that it's adapted from uh, to understand what stories, what story is going to be told here, because what we do get is um, like you say, a stacked cast, but we aren't familiar like who the good and the bad are when we look at this cast. And we also don't know um, who this Indiana Jones looking like Bradley Cooper. Like we don't know what his role in the story is either. Um, and I say that because he walks in wearing like a fedora and a trench coat and immediately it gives me, it gives you Indiana Jones vibes. Um, I like, I like that they're just teasing us. I mean, this, I don't want to say like it's a carnival setting, but there's definitely some kind of like fun house, you know, uh, at play here. Um, so Kate Planchett, I think she's going to take us on a wild journey. I'm um, hoping that she and Bradley Cooper are more so like the um, like front runners of the cast. But uh, who knows? Maybe they'll divide time amongst everybody. I have a lot of question marks here. You know, like what, what the story's um going to be focused on or what the main, like, yeah, what the main conflict is going to center around. So I might have to do my own digging because seeing it in a trailer may be too much of a reveal for me. But I still want that like that scoop of like, you know, what is this going to be about? Um, I'm famous for like oftentimes boycotting trailers because uh, 
I feel like they give away so much, but this one actually did the right thing here in my, from, from where I'm standing, like they didn't tell us so far what the characters are all going to be facing only that they all have these amazing, amazing placements throughout their world. While Willem Dafoe delivers a monologue that we can listen to on a loop because Willem Dafoe's voice is of that caliber. <laughs> Willem Dafoe is eating up every single second he is in this trailer, and I cannot wait to see. But like again, the cast is stacked. Maybe arguably one of Del Toro's more stacked cast lineups. Um, but Willem Dafoe just seems like it, it was that question of like, why has he not worked with him earlier? Like he fits in so naturally with this style. I don't know why. And it also reminded me. Uh, if you guys haven't seen, there's been a video floating around of when uh, in Spider-Man Two, Willem Dafoe pops up on set and plays like Doc Ock in the suit for a minute. Uh, it's a, I will send it to you guys if you haven't seen it, but it reminds me eerily of that, um, because confidence. Um, I will say there, uh, Del Toro did an interview earlier this year where he talked about how this film doesn't have any supernatural elements as, as compared to his previous movies. And that makes me question this even more because you get the vibe from the trailer that this is very clearly going to be some kind of, you know, creature or some kind of otherworldly force, you know, with the eyeball motifs and everything like that. And apparently that's not it. So I wonder, and again, I haven't read the book. I know the original is very difficult to find, but hopefully I can seek it out before this. I'm very curious to see where that transition leads, especially for Del Toro, who is so used to, you know, dealing with, you know, extrasensory ideas in the context of, you know, real world ideas and real life issues. So I'm wondering if this is just going to be more of a straightforward, you know, eerie thriller drama. Uh, and I will add, uh, this is Dan Lauston's uh, fourth collaboration with Del Toro's her cinematography. He goes, uh, nominated for Shape of Water, deserves every bit of praise for that movie. Um, so I'm ecstatic to see what he can do visually with this. Gosh, you know, out of a curiosity, um, what kind of creature do you all think it is, uh, you know, with us not having much experience with the book and stuff? A man. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do we handle this? <laughs> or or if, we, if the if the trailer is to be believed, it's some kind of like weird giant eyeball creature. Like, I think that could be neat. Because just because of the eye motifs and everything like that. But again, it's not supposed to be that. So either Del Toro is lying or I don't know. And especially when it comes to Del Toro, like he's great with his creatures, as we mentioned already with Pan's Labyrinth and everything in Shape of Water. So yeah, whatever he makes, this will be fun. Like you say, in him we trust and uh, we'll have to, we'll definitely have to keep tabs on this and see what developments come out. Totally. Keep an eye on this award season. We are going to move on to arguably the most stacked story we have today, uh, which will be followed by a very small story, hopefully. Um, this is regarding our good friend Christopher Nolan and his crusades for theatrical saviorism. Yay. Okay, so buckle in for this. So earlier this past week, we got the confirmation that Christopher Nolan had essentially not severed ties with Warner Brothers, but it basically moved over to Universal for his next project, which is going to be based, uh, supposedly it's going to be a lower budget project about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the creation of the atomic bomb. Cool. Well, we didn't know were the specifics as to what this was, and it shed some light into what Nolan's deal was at Warner Brothers, why he went away, and also where his career might be going uh, in the future with this. In a report from uh, Boris Kip from The Hollywood Reporter, we got basically a confirmation that over the last few weeks, uh, four different studios, Universal, Paramount, Apple, as well as Sony, all basically went to Nolan's house to try and do a Godfather-style negotiation for this J. Robert Oppenheimer project. Uh, of those three, Universal came in on top. Uh, studio head Donna Langley has apparently built a very uh, a very key uh, relationship with Christopher Nolan over the last number of years. She was also able to basically go, hey, over the pandemic, things have been terrible, but we've been able to support our filmmakers and our franchises with films like Fast 9, uh, with Old, with uh, Candyman just this past week, as well as the home video uh, pioneering sort of technique that had Strolls World Tour make kind of an early pandemic hit. 
Of those, uh, we also got confirmation about some of the deals in terms of conditions that no one had with Warner Brothers that were carried over into this, uh, that he insisted on for this J. Robert Oppenheim project. $100 million in budget, a 100-day theatrical window, although these appear to be, again, the terms that he had with Warner Brothers as well, uh, as well as a bunch of other caveats. And we will link the uh, Polly Reporter article in the description below if you want to check that out for yourself. Nolan's split from Warner Brothers, of course, comes in the wake of Tenet, uh, the massive tentpole movie that was hopefully going to save theaters during the pandemic. It made decent money. It made good Oscar buzz. It was well-received by critics and fans, but it did not do the business that Nolan wanted, and he was infamously furious with Warner Brothers as far as the HBO Max uh, hybrid streaming model that they've been handling this year, as well as the you know theatrical distribution models that have been in place for several years that he was just not able to take advantage of for Tenet. Noah, I want to start with you because I've been raving about the details way too long. Uh, did you see Tenet, first of all, in a theater or at home? And what do you think of Nolan's move from Warner Bros. to Universal, and how does it bode well or not well for other filmmakers for this kind of deal? I did see Tenet. I often ask myself, what is a temporal pincer? But you know what? Those questions aren't meant for me to answer. That is meant for Christopher Nolan to draft, me to see and believe, and then walk out believing I just... I could recreate it in my memory if I had to. Um, I had a lot of fun with Tenet. I thought that um, it was an excellent, uh, it was an excellent ride for us to watch. Um, oh my gosh, Washington, help me with the name. John David Washington. John David Washington just kicked some butt in that movie. Um, he was excellent to follow as the protagonist. Um, I think if I if we wanted to have a longer conversation, we could ask ourselves questions and dance in circles around, around what um, the good and bad was of Tenet. Um, but I mean, it had, it had a wonderful cast that I love to see. Um, it had uh, some great sci-fi elements that weren't unlike Nolan to include. So I, I think I walked away from Tenet. Lackluster isn't that lackluster isn't a nice enough word, but that's how I can feel. Um, it had me, it gave me the sense that I, that I needed to know more between the relationships between Pattinson's character and Washington's character. Um, but maybe that's left, you know, that's left to interpretation. We're supposed to run with the idea that they do live like this adventurous life together that is at the end of one of theirs, but at the beginning of the others. Um, fun times when you're talking about Tenet. Some of the Nolan news, like I think on, I mean, I'm, I'm on all over Twitter. So I see Christopher Nolan have, debates and i don't want to say he's like raging but he does have a dislike for the way uh theaters have not treated his movies but i guess the results the turnout that his movies has ha have had in the theaters because of the pandemic and i guess i'm still forming my opinions around it so how i feel is like here's a visionary who thought that his project could have this end game that was a lot grander than what it actually was and felt that he was minuscule by the production company he was working with. I'm not sure if I have a lot of comments over him uh, moving to universal, or at least if this is a deal of them just talking about it. Um, Brandon, can you remind me is universal? Are they, are they now securing a deal? So that is in place. Yeah. As far as we know, that universal deal is now in place. Okay. Um, then I think it's just, it's a new opportunity for Nolan to, um, excite us, emerge with some new content, you know, steer clear of any of the off-screen publicity that he may get for reactions to his films or any conversations about his films. Um, I've always been a fan of Christopher Nolan's movies. So uh, if this means that he can work under conditions that produce his work better or gives him a better um, position with how they do in theaters or how they do on upon release, then I guess uh, I feel comfortable supporting that. 
I have way too little time to go into my thoughts on this because I have way too much to say about it, but I will try and make it brief. Um, I love Christopher Nolan. I believe wholeheartedly that he believes that what he has been doing for the past year and a half is absolutely right and good and for the good of, you know, filmmakers and cinemas and theater owners and studios alike. I totally believe all of that. If you have read any interviews, that just rings true. However, it's giving me vibes of Nolan's not turn to the dark side, but turn towards, you know, raging old man at cloud syndrome, which I think we've seen in some of the, you know, legacy directors in the past. And that is weird to refer to Nolan as a legacy director. I was actually pegging him to go to Paramount because with the whole, you know, executive switch up and Paramount needs a big theatrical boom in the next year or so, if they're going to, you know, make their money back for a lot of other things, I was really expecting him to go over there and, you know, just shake up the entire system there. That could have been amazing. Obviously, Apple has been making huge moves with film and TV. Sony just made their deal with Quentin Tarantino a few years ago for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So they are in the business of, you know, artistic filmmakers, but they just go into Universal. And I think that goes towards, you know, for better or worse, what Donald Langley has been doing with this studio, whether it is the Fast and Furious movies, whether it is, you know, the DreamWorks animation stuff, she is bringing on filmmakers to bring on, you know, distinct projects that they will have control over that they know how to market. And I think it's, you know... Dear Evan Hansen Hans withstanding, we'll find out, you know, next week. It's very interesting to see where Universal is taking their approaches to filmmakers with this. And again, I have way too much more to say, but we have to pass this on to Sam because otherwise she can't say anything. So Sam, what do you think about all this? No, no, no problem. You, you both really hit most of the points that I had. And I'm also on the side of like, this feels a little petty, the move. Um, yeah. And I think it's just because it, it, it's it's petty, but not unexpected because of all the drama that was brought up from Tenet's release, you know, and it's like, I felt like it was only a matter of time before he was going to switch to a different studio because of how angry he was and very openly angry about um, Tenet's release and, and the success that followed it. Um, but it's just like, you know, I, I, I understand it to an extent. I understand if like you set up your expectations so high that when they don't work out the way you want it to, of course, that's going to disappoint you. So I could kind of sympathize from his side, but it's just like this does feel very petty. Um, and so having said that, we'll see what he creates with Universal. I mean, it's always exciting when you hear um, creatives working together in a certain way, and especially for this Oppenheimer film, it seems very interesting. And just with the premise alone, I can imagine all sorts of like atomic bomb tests, like going in reverse and everything, like, because as we know, Nolan loves time themes. And so I'm just, I feel like that's going to be depicted really well, like probably a race to create this atomic bomb. And, and I think that, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan will do a great job just showcasing that and what that looks like. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited for what's to come, but having said that, it just seems very interesting. And I wonder if, we would see other directors follow suit because there are times when other uh, directors will also be angry at their release, especially in the time of the pandemic when it didn't make as much money. So, you know, I wonder if that means that other directors would follow suit, but who knows? Cause again, I feel like Nolan was the one who's the most vocal about it in the last year. And I did see Tenet for what it's worth too. Cause you were talking about that. So I did see Tenet. I did like it, but it definitely confused me. I'm not going to pretend I know everything about it. And so, um, it, but I thought it was a really well done movie. And so, um, it definitely needs a second watch for, for a general audience to understand, but good movie nonetheless. And I do appreciate Nolan's stuff. There were a couple times that I couldn't hear anything though. And, um, I'll have to look it up later, but there's, uh, this YouTuber that I follow, like a YouTube creator and he, does like theme um theme topics like he was talking about how Riz Ahmed was super good in um Sound of Metal the sound design in there and it was like a whole thesis on like how great the sound design was and sure enough they ended up winning the Oscar for that but yeah he'll do, do stuff like that and he did the same thing with Nolan's like why are 
why can't you hear anything in Nolan's movies? And honestly, that made me think a lot. So uh, yeah, definitely check that out if you get a chance. But uh, yeah, I'm just excited to see uh, what he can do long story short with Oppenheimer too. So what we're saying is go nuts, Chris. Just let us hear the dialogue. So that's where I'm at. Because yeah, there were so many times that I could not hear it. Granted, I did see it in uh, my first drive-in movie theater experience because pandemic. So I, I did actually see it in there, but I thought that our radio was blaring loud enough that I could hear all the gunshots at least, but I couldn't, um, there were times when I couldn't hear some of the the lines. And from what I remember seeing in interviews, that was on purpose. That was a creative, that was a creative touch that uh, Nolan wanted in his films. It is of course time affects sound as we all, you know, theoretically know. We are going to end off our major stories today with Bright is back. Uh, of course, the Will Smith, Joel Edgerton uh, sort of orc fantasy cop drama directed by David Ayer a couple years ago. Massive hit for Netflix. Panned by critics, it's getting a spinoff, and it got a trailer this week. It looks really cool. Uh, it is uh, based in, you know, anime stylings. It follows a samurai named Izo, voiced by uh, Simu Liu, and an orc named uh, Raiden, voiced by, uh, Fred, uh, by Fred Mancuso, protecting a young elf girl in possession of a powerful magical wand. If you remember from the original Bright, magical wands in this universe are kind of the equivalents of, you know, atom bombs or machine guns. They're, you know, the most powerful weapons in this universe. Fairy tale and psychopastor Kiyohia Ishiguro will be directing it, and it will drop on Netflix uh, in just a few weeks on October 12th. Noah, I'm curious for you, uh, what did you think of the original Bright if you saw it? And two, what are your uh, thoughts on this uh, new anime-style spinoff? The original Bright uh, really impressed me. Uh, usually I'm not into the cop dramas. I mean, there's there's a couple that I will, um, that I do appreciate, uh, you know, end of watch. Of course, that one always gets me. But um, Bright had that, that intersection of the cop drama, but it was also set in a fantastical universe. Um, Even from the opening scene, we have Will Smith being like asked to go outside and uh, dispose of a, it's not a fairy, but it's a, um, Ooh, can anybody remember? I think it's like a Sprite or something, but the Sprites are like mosquitoes outside. Like they're like a pest. So I just liked the um, like suburban living with like orcs next door or with uh, trolls um, blocking highways, like uh, all of them being very uh, pedestrian with each other. And then we got to uncover like the, the, all of this lore that exists between wands and magic in this universe that really, that really excited me and my partner. Cause we're very um, invested into like these fantasy uh, stories. I love that we're going to see the same universe in a different culture because when we're getting that, receiving this anime um, it's going to be a film. So it's going to be an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, I would love to hear the voice of Simu Lu, um voice the lead. So uh, I know that I will be watching it with his dub. The original Bright released in 2017 and immediately after I was anticipating a sequel because I loved Will Smith. It, it wasn't, I, I didn't get the same Will Smith that I'd been getting from recent projects. And then Joel Edgerton as the um, compassionate, uh, I'm going to call him an orc. Correct me if that's not him. Um, but uh, I, I liked their dynamic in that show. I know that this animated spinoff will not feature those two characters but we'll still have other orcs we'll have other uh fantasy creatures involved and um looking forward to like an adventure story uh like i said voiced and headed by simulu and actually funny enough this is actually simulu's second anime project this year he's going to be in a star wars visions uh next week so can't wait to hear him in that and there is a bright sequel proper in the works as well uh david Ayer will not be coming back to that actually louis leterrier who did uh me in the incredible hulk he will be actually directing that, and both Will Smith and Joel Edgerton are set to come back for that as well. Sam, over to you. Uh, thoughts on Bright? Thoughts on the anime spinoff? Are you interested at all? 
Yeah, I'm honestly really interested, and it's because of you, Brandon, because I remember when you first saw it, you were very, very excited about it. And for some reason, the plot didn't really attract me to to watch it. And so I, I really didn't give it a second thought until you were like, oh my gosh, Bright is so good. Have, have you seen it? And I was like, no, I, I honestly haven't. And that's when you know, I basically, I'm like, well, I guess I got to see it now because Brandon's super excited about it. And of course, unfortunately, years have passed and I haven't had the chance to watch it. I can't keep up, guys. Anime nowadays is one of the most successful industries right now in, in terms of like animation and in terms of just like a media form because so many people love anime especially around our age like you know young adults to people in their 20s and 30s and so i feel like it's gonna give bright a whole new audience a whole fresh spin and so for me i'm excited about it just as someone who likes movies and tv shows it'll be great for for that story to find a new outlet and i'm i'm here for it yeah, beyond the fact that I am, you know, woefully ignorant when it comes to anime, I've seen maybe a few, but I've, I've never really, you know, done the full delve into a lot of things. Although Full Metal Brotherhood rules and you should all watch it. Um, I will also admit, I hated to jump into that. I've soured on Bright a lot. Um, Are you I was, serious? I was way too kind to it when it came out. Like, I, I, again, I did wow. love it when it came out. I revisited it again about two years ago and I thought, what was I on? Uh, <laughs> like, it's fine. I, I don't go as far as, you know, like the huge panning that a lot of critics don't run it towards, but like, I like the, the Will Smith Jolgerton stuff. I think the world building is kind of interesting. It doesn't really do anything with it, but it, it's interesting. And so I was curious to see like, oh, like taking the story, you know, hundreds of years prior and seeing what you could do with, you know, a sort of like Ronin style, you know, cub and wolf story with this. Uh, seemingly, I can't wait to see his future as a voice actor, obviously. Um, and the animation looks really cool. I like what they're doing with this. I like how they're taking sort of the the images that, you know, David Ayer brought with that movie and kind of translating them to this. The fights look great. So it, it, it's interesting to me. It's just one of those things where even the bright sequel, I've just gone from, you know, you can't see, but like here to here, like it has not been a straight path. That's a hot take. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I <laughs> so, didn't. oh gosh, sorry about that. Cause then I basically just hyped up your opinion. And <laughs> breaking news, that opinion does not stand anymore. <laughs> we, uh, we need Wong to open a portal to, you know, 2017 Brandon and bring him here to be like, great is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if only, maybe someday. <laughs> if only, maybe someday. We can go ahead and move on. That's going to wrap our new segment for today's show. Uh, let's get into some new releases this week. We're going to be talking about three films. Uh, they are Blue by You, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Uh, Sam, we'll go ahead and start with you. Uh, looks like you've reviewed Blue by You, so I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on how that film was. This is a directed theater, so we're not getting it on any streaming platforms. Uh, tell us what it's about and tell us what you walked away thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So Blue Bayou, um, Justin Chan, who years ago actually played Eric from Twilight, uh, <laughs> ended up starring, directing and writing Blue Bayou. So he's a triple threat in here. And it's it's phenomenal, honestly. And it's funny because I actually lost track of Justin Chan and what he's been up to. So this was refreshing for me personally to just see him in a whole different light because, of course, every actor from Twilight has really progressed since Twilight. So thank goodness for that. Um, but it's a drama about a Korean-American named Antonio who uh, Justin Chan plays. And um, he's an international adoptee who's facing deportation despite living in America for like more than 30 years. So it's, it's kind of scary, honestly. It, it, and he has a wife named Kathy. It 
played by Alicia Vikander and a stepdaughter with daddy issues um, from Ace, who is a cop that abandoned um, Kathy and his daughter, you know, and he's just looking to make things right again, whatever that might be, sometimes good ways, sometimes bad ways. And so Lynn Danfam also stars in it, as well as Sydney Kowalski, who plays the stepdaughter, Bondi Curtis Hall and Emery Cohen also star in this film. And like you mentioned, it's out in theaters now. And so this movie to me, it had such an impact and there is bias in here. I, I am an international adoptee myself. And so it was kind of interesting to put myself in this perspective here because I, I know for a fact that my mom went through all the right procedures for citizenship, especially because there was like a citizenship ceremony, like um, just a few, I think it was like maybe like a year after I got to America. I just know I was little because I was adopted at six months old, but um, it was just, you know, like, I'm glad that she did that. There are picture, there's picture proof and document proof that I'm a citizen, but unfortunately um, there are scenarios where people who've been here for like their entire lives because they're international adoptees and they're facing deportation and um, it's due to a law and it basically, you know, means that some kids fell through the cracks from like 1970s to 2000s. And so some of those kids who were adopted might not have actually gotten the proper citizenship and they could face deportation. And in um, Antonio's case, he does have a criminal record. So in the movie, they make it clear like, oh, you're, you're right for the picking. They look for people like you to deport, um, you know, back to wherever you came from. And this movie takes place in Louisiana. So as you can imagine, it's beautiful there. You get some of the classic riverboat scenes. It's very brief, but it's beautiful. Um, and I, I love the the scenery that they're in. And it's really deep without going into too much detail. Um, the Bayou really means a lot specifically to Antonio's character. And you see that come back and forth into play as flashbacks and in current scenes. And um, you know, those, those include spoilers, so I won't get into that, but it's just the way they depict that is really beautiful in my opinion. And in, you know, I also think that Lynn Dan Pham is also very, underrated she deserves way more recognition in this movie because she plays uh, a character named parker who meets antonio just by chance in the hospital and it's just it she's such a strong character who ultimately really influences some of antonio's decisions near the end of the movie um but she just brings a lot of heart to the film and antonio in general also brings a lot of that heart as well because his chemistry with uh, you know, Justin Chan's chemistry with all of the cast members is really, really phenomenal. And it's really, like I mentioned in the review, it's delight. It's like a delight to watch him interact with um, Sydney, who plays the stepdaughter again. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if any of those takes were taken and the actors didn't realize the camera was rolling because they just looked so natural, you know. Um, but I, I, I really loved it it's very gut-wrenching. It kind of leaves you feeling empty in places. Um, and you wonder kind of what happens in the rest of the process once the credits roll. You wonder what happens to this family next. And so I, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend it. I believe for a star rating, I gave it an eight. And the reason I did that, because um, the cinematography, again, an example of where it makes or breaks for me, um, there was a lot of shaky cam in it. So there were a couple of times that it was making me super dizzy. And it was like, like, I understand why they would do that. But you know, I feel like it would have been more fitting to keep some minor shaky cam with the chaotic scenes because there were a few of those as opposed to ones where he's just running, you know, like, okay, he's just running and then you're going to follow him and bounce with him. And to me, that just kind of was too much. Um, so I just thought it was kind of a lot there. And there were some inconsistencies minor, like uh, with narratives, but otherwise, like 
I really loved it. And so I would definitely recommend it. This is uh, one of Justin Chan's. I'm reading his IMDb page and I see that he's got about five. um, Or Let me correct myself. About six uh, directing credits. I want to know from you, Sam, uh, what did you feel was very stylistic for Justin in this um, in this film that you watched or did you, did you notice anything that really stood out to you as something, um, you know, particular with Justin Chan? I would say that there were a lot of big landscape shots that would be um, opening to, Oh, how do I describe it? Sorry. This is a great question. No, I'm so glad you asked it. Oh no. Yeah. Take your time. If you want to think of an answer. Well, cause one of the things that stood out to me with Justin Chan was actually his acting. So just off the moment at the top of my head at the moment, I know it's not a directing thing per se, but his acting was really good. I mean, there were times that you could see his eye twitching. And for me, that was just, it was a phenomenal because it's like he, he might not necessarily be losing it, but you could read everything that the character's feeling because simply his eyes just twitching wildly. And so I'm just like, you know, like his acting is phenomenal in this um directing wise i'm just trying to think of something but um that like i feel like i'm still trying to figure out what his style is because again i i just really lost track of things that he was doing i i only knew him from eric from twilight and that's very little because he's done so much more since then so i really got to catch up um on on all the things he's done especially with his six directing credits there in addition to this so yeah, and then and then coming out of the blue, having writing, directing, and like leading role credits um, as part of this film is very surprising. If you're ready, we can go ahead and move on to the eyes of Tammy Faye. I know that Brandon can be part of that conversation. Uh, Brandon, why don't you tell us about the eyes of Tammy Faye? Yeah, I've got a preview coming out for ASU Odyssey as well, so keep your eye uh, open for that. Uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye. This is Michael Showalter's newest project, who also directed uh, The Big Sick as well as The Lovebirds from last year, which I also reviewed. Go check that out. Um, again, this is based on the true life story of Tammy, uh, of Tammy Faye Baker and uh, Jim Baker, who were renowned, famous, and incredibly controversial televangelists in the uh, in the early eighties. Uh, they founded a show called the Praise the Lord Club uh, in the midst of sort of the Christian televangelist movement of the early eighties. You know, had millions of followers. They you know uh, they come from this huge background, and the film follows uh, essentially through the eyes of Tammy Faye, who in this movie is played by Jessica Chastain. She is a you know uh, she's a young girl from Middle America. She becomes absolutely enthralled by you know Christianity and religion. She goes to Bible college. She meets a young preacher named Jim Baker, who in this movie is played by Andrew Garfield, and together they you know they found the Praise the Lord Club. They go through all this, and then. Scandal after scandal after scandal begins to hit. Uh, the two's marriage begins to absolutely implode. And the sort of, you know, Christian uh, televangelist hierarchy, including uh, Jerry Falwell, who in this movie is played by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, they are sort of coming in to kind of get the audience that the bakers have set up with this to get the trust the audience has. And it's all through, you know, Tammy's eyes as someone who is kind of, you know, going along for the ride. She's attempting to be, you know, a famous uh, gospel singer as well. She works with a producer in there who she has an affair with. It's a whole thing. Um, and when I explain all that, it sounds more fascinating than the actual movie is. Um, and I, I really hate to sound that because I actually do like this. Uh, I, I think what Michael Showalter does with this is really gravitate towards the glamour of it all. Like when we get all the stuff with the televangelism community and with the PTL club and all that stuff, it, it's really quite electric. Like you, 
Jessica Chastain is doing amazing. If I may use a pun, Jessica Chastain is doing the Lord's work in this. Um, it's too easy. Uh, and Andrew Garfield really gets a couple moments to really shine as well. And when they are on stage reenacting, you know, what the bakers were doing for that, there's a lot of really great set design there. Unfortunately, it can't quite decide what it wants to be. It Towards the second half of the movie, it does become more of an examination of, you know, Tammy's abuse by Jim and sort of her, you know, uh, her coming of age journey, so to speak. Uh, within the Christian community. And it winds up working then, but by then it is way too late. It takes way too long to actually get there. The early scenes with Chastain and Garfield are really not written very well. It's very cheesy. It's very kind of, you know, plain, so to speak. And I think that's kind of the point because they are coming from a very, you know, rural, incredibly Christian background. And it, it works to that degree, but I was just never interested in it until it got to the more, you know, how is the, you know, evangelist community at large focusing on this? I will say the makeup department deserves absolute awards for consideration. The way that they transform Jessica Chastain into this is amazing. And again, her performance is really quite good. She, uh, I don't know if she learned to sing for this, but she absolutely developed her voice for this and she really can sing actually. Um, but even in the darker moments, like she does so much to convey the loneliness and the, you know, questioning of faith that Tammy starts to provide on this. Uh, she was an, uh, she was an ally for LGBTQ youth at a time when, in the especially in the televangelism community, that was a huge no. And when you get scenes like that, they are powerful to a degree. But I did not find nearly enough of that. I really wanted more. It goes way too long. And again, the writing can feel really tepid at times when it's not focusing on the exploration of how absolutely maddening this PTL club was and how maddening Jim Baker's views on materialism and views on Christianity were. Once you get to that point, it starts to delve into something interesting, but it takes way too long. Uh, overall, this is a very easy 6.5 out of 10. Uh, again, go for the performances, go for the makeup. Like there is a transformation there and there are moments that are legitimately energizing. But as far as a whole goes, I was just, I, I wanted more from this. I do have a question to ask you uh, just to keep in the nature of, I mean, sorry, everybody. I actually didn't get around to watching any uh, releases this week. So I'm kind of playing the role of moderator for our two lovely guests here, uh, not guests, host what am i saying my this is now my show um everybody welcome wait what <laughs> the eyes of um okay uh but brandon you mentioned uh, a possible uh award knob for hair and makeup and it's it's indisputable i think because i'm looking at the you know the thumbnail for uh one of the trailers and jessica chastain you couldn't tell me that was her unless i saw like i mean i would need to see the credited list because um that is quite the transformation do you see any other department getting an award nom um other than hair and makeup for uh, either their performances. Um, what are your thoughts on um, some of the editing or maybe the directing choices? Um, I'd love to hear from you. Again, the only other one that I put besides hair and makeup is just Anne for lead actress, because again, I think so much of the remove the movie relies through her facial expressions and her going through this journey. And she really, for whatever the script lacks. And again, I, I do have big problems with the writing for whatever the script lacks. She steps up and she does a lot to elevate Tammy to being sympathetic and to being complicated and to, you know, this kind of radical, you know, movement within the televangelist community, so to speak. I mean, you know, there are things about that, but as far as like her performance goes, definitely keep an eye on that actress and actor time. Again, it can be incredibly stacked in the next few months as we all, you know, know every Oscar season, but I would definitely put her in the, in the mix. I don't know if I put anything else. Uh, we actually just have one more to get to today, and that is Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Uh, that is releasing on Amazon Prime Video uh, streaming service, as well as in theaters. Uh, Brandon, we're going to go ahead and turn over to you because you are going to be the expert on everything's 
sorry, on everybody's talking about Jamie. What can you share with us? I know all the things that people's talking about Jamie. Um, yeah, so this is uh, Jonathan Butterell's uh, directorial debut. He directed the stage play this is based on. Uh, this is based on an actual West End musical from a couple of years ago uh, from Dan Gillespie Sells, who returns to the music, as well as Tom McRae, who wrote the original screen, uh, who wrote the original play. He's come back to write uh, this movie as well. It tells the story of uh, Jamie New in this movie, played by I keep forgetting the young guy, uh, Max Harwood, uh, who is a uh, new up and coming actor. He plays a uh, 16-year-old Jamie who is, you know, he's kind of going about his life. He lives with his uh, single mother, played by Sarah Lancashire. And he has this dream that is a little bit unlike his classmates, if you want to call it that. He wants to be a drag queen. That's all he's ever dreamed of. He, you know, loves dressing up in gowns. He loves the drag culture. He loves all of that. And he essentially has to try and find his journey throughout this. He meets an... Uh, he meets a veteran drag queen named Hugo, played by uh, Richard E. Grant, uh, who kind of mentors him in the ways of drag culture. He has a best friend uh, named Pretty, played by Lauren Patel, who is also a new upcoming actress as well. And together, they kind of, you know, maneuver throughout their last year of uh, their last year of exams in uh, in their British school. They deal with bullies. They deal with prejudice. They deal with uh, Jamie's father, who is mostly absent for a lot of the movie, but kind of disapproves of a lot of his uh of his lifestyle and a lot of his choice. It's essentially about Jamie coming into his own as a drag queen and, you know, exploring that culture and finding out who he is about that. Uh, again, this is based on the stage musical of the same name. I didn't know anything about it. I had heard about it, that it was going to be, you know, this big musical from Amazon, but I didn't really know what to expect from it per se. And I got to tell you, I had a blast with this. I think this movie is so electric and energizing and fun when it needs to be. Uh, the musical numbers are great. Uh, again, what, what Dan sells with this, I, I'm going to have the title track stuck in my head for at least another week. The hook is absolutely infectious. Uh, the mixing on the production is actually really good, which is a whole nother thing. Max Harwood is a find on this. He has to do so much with this character and he steps up to all of it. He's, again, he's so fun to watch. He's so energetic to watch. But when it comes to the dramatic moments, he really makes it work. You understand Jamie's conflict about you know, what he understands as drag culture versus what it actually is and his relationship with Hugo. But Richard E. Grant is eating up every scene he's in, by the way. Um, and when you see that dynamic play of like, no, like you think it's one thing, this is actually like a whole culture of, you know, struggle and trauma, but also, you know, beauty and, you know, uh, a beauty and culture and fashion that, you know, you know. And once those come into play, it really, I think, elevates the movie even more to what I thought it would, what I thought it wouldn't uh, come out to be. At times, I will admit the middle tempers off a little bit. Uh, some of the stuff with the dad, I think, could have taken a little bit further. It's kind of there and then it's gone. And I feel like it could have been explored a bit more. Uh, but again, like for how absolutely for how much I smiled with it. Again, I'm, I'm shocked at how much I actually had a good fun time with it. And I think those themes and that energy will resonate with a lot of audiences. So I absolutely got a blast out of this. As far as ratings go, uh, this is a very easy 8 out of 10 for me. The songs are great. Max Harewood is an absolute fine. You will probably have a blast with this. I recommend it. Hey, Brandon, are you a fan of musicals? You know what's funny is that I always told myself, like, oh, I'm, I'm not really a musical guy, like that thing, you know, kind of all that. And then in the last number of years, I've kind of had to reconcile the fact that, like, I might be a musical fan. <laughs> we pulled you in. We pulled you in. Uh, that's, that's great to hear. I just, I knew that there was the conversation we had where, um, 
you know, I picked up that you either were or you weren't. So I wanted to remind myself as well as anybody who's listening. Um, and I, I will say as far as, you know, musicals go this year, we've had, you know, Annette and we had In the Heights. And I think this has been really interesting. You know, again, I wasn't high on Annette. Go check out our review for that. That was a very fun conversation. Um, and we'll be talking about Gervin Henson next week. So we'll see about that as well. But this has been a really interesting year for movie musicals. And I would definitely chalk this up as one of the better ones. Yes. All right, it's time for that special segment of the week, TV Nonsense Streaming Wars Whodunit. Uh, that's what we're calling it this week. It'll have a different name every week. I've made that decree. We're talking uh, our weekly segment of Marvel's What If. Uh, this is episode six. We've officially passed the halfway mark of it all. What if Killmonger rescued Tony Stark? Uh, so this takes place, of course, uh, right towards the beginning, I should say, of the first Iron Man movie, all the way back in 2008. Uh, Tony Stark is a you know military-grade weapons developer in the Bush administration. He is, you know, selling weapons all over the world. He goes to Afghanistan. He almost dies in his convoy. But instead of, you know, uh, getting shrapnel in his chest and having to build the Iron Man suit of necessity and all the things that we know him from, he is rescued by Eric Killmonger, uh, once again voiced by Michael B. Jordan, uh, of course, from Black Panther. Uh, and essentially throughout the process of the episode, we essentially see uh, Eric and Tony form this really kind of unsepar- inseparable bond. Uh, Eric basically reveals Obadiah Stane's uh, plans for Tony way earlier, so that's no longer a threat. We see his relationship with uh, Pepper Potts and uh, Happy Hogan once again, and we also see Eric's plans for Wakanda that were supposed to be in place years down the line for Black Panther, now taking place years and years earlier. Uh, we also see characters like Shuri pop up, but the real context of the story is between Eric and Tony's relationship. Uh, Noah, I want to start out with you. What do you think of this week? Uh, I had to watch it twice, and I want to say I want to share why. What wasn't totally clear to me was. I guess the structure of the episode, like what needed to happen for the end to happen in the episode. Um, it wasn't clear to me what Killmonger's motivations were uh, when he was working alongside Tony and then shifting from there to his, um, you know, whatever goes on in Wakanda. So I watched it twice. And the second time I watched it, I got more of a, I guess I could back the story a little bit more because what you're going to get here is Killmonger doing what Killmonger does best. And that's look out for himself. Um you know, he, he is selfish, but he believes in his own, it's like he believes in his own code. And so it's not like he's just acting out of uh, self-interest, no matter the consequences. He is aware of the consequences, but he's like, he's so calculated that um, I think you get even more of his character that you got in the first half, uh, or maybe like three quarters of the original Black Panther. That's what you get in Eric Killmonger in this new What If episode. Um, him working with Tony was interesting to see because we don't get the the pieces of Tony that we, uh, I guess that we adore, you know, we don't, we don't get that. We just get arrogant Tony. And that's, that's all that he is when he doesn't pick up that Iron Man mantle. And I think that um, I like seeing that. I was impressed by the action. We do get and a great fight sequence uh, put on by Black Panther doing what Black Panther does best. It's Chadwick Boseman again. And then it surprised me to see, um, it wasn't surprising to know that Killmonger like goes back on his word like thrice in this episode. But what did surprise me was him actually him fighting with Tony. Uh, that part took me by surprise. And um, then his motivations to Wakanda, uh, like I said, I had to rewatch in order for them to become clearer for me. This episode is so fresh in my mind. I want, definitely want to hear from you two before I you know formulate my official opinion on this and, and give it a ranking. Um, so with that being said, you know. Uh, some of the ups for me were the Wakanda warfare, you know, getting arrogant Tony, uh, Killmonger doing what Killmonger does, and then uh, 
that Black Panther fight scene. So uh, I have no problem, you know, shifting over to Sam. Why don't we talk about this new What If episode and then uh, see how it favors in your ranking. Yeah, you know, I don't blame you, Noah. I actually thought that the introduction was kind of misleading because it's not really a spoiler if you look at the what the episode's about, but they basically say what happens if Tony wasn't rescued by the attack and, and, you know, this gives a villain a new start. And so I was like, Oh, okay. Interesting. And I kind of thought this episode was going to lead down a line where like Killmonger actually isn't a villain where maybe he's like a mercenary or something, or like, I don't know. Like I just didn't expect things to go the way they did. I, I know it's probably my fault for basing that off of like one line, but I just, I just, you know, I, I thought the episode went in a different direction, but I wasn't mad about it. I really did enjoy it, the episode. And like Noah was saying, like you saw those familiar characters and I liked seeing more of Pepper and I liked seeing, um, you know, possibly, uh, you know, people from Wakanda also working with people in America in um, different ways than, you know, we've already seen before. So I'm, I'm excited to see where else that goes because the episode does kind of leave off somewhere where um, you might see more of these characters and I want to see more of what they do. Uh, and so, you know, that dynamic I thought was really interesting to put Tony Stark together with Killmonger because, yeah, those motivations seemed very blurry at first. Um, and and I don't know. It was just nice to see people come back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so I, I overall actually really enjoyed the episode and, and the fight scenes were really cool, too. I felt like all of them were super memorable they were really well done and i'm still a fan of this comic book aesthetic that we keep seeing each episode just the art style is really fun and i felt like it was the most prominent in this episode for some reason maybe because there were more scenes that were like more bombastic with like explosives or you know stealth scenes that made me feel like i was watching like somebody play spider-man on the playstation i don't know it was just like things like that where um it just I don't know. It felt more heightened to me in this episode and I, I really enjoyed it. And honestly, it's, it's moved up in my higher overall rankings with the um, what if episode. So uh, Brandon, how about you? Two words, general Ravana. <laughs> I, although it makes me question why the hell we didn't get it in black Panther because I want that now. She's a, I mean, she already was a badass, but even more of a badass. Um, yeah. I, I also came to the realization that I think I've started to recognize I think I like the even number what ifs more because again, I, I loved episode two. I loved episode four and I love this, but you know, one I thought was, you know, solid three. I thought was a mess, but a cool mess. And five, I thought was, you know, okay, fun. So I'm was, boiling. I'm sorry? boiling. Corner. <laughs> no, I said I'm boiling. Cause I love the zombies one, but keep going, Brandon. <laughs> I, I, again, like it's fun. It totally is. But it was one of those things where like, there's the there's the even ones and there's the odd ones. So I, I've started to realize that. I really like this. Uh, I love the parallel between Tony and Eric's motivations that we get later on. Because when I was telling one of my friends when we were talking about this, is I love that we get we get a reminder that Tony Stark is not this you know icon of good that the MC was propped him up to be. Like in the first Iron Man, he's a jerk. He's a giant grade A jerk um, who you know builds weapons for fun essentially. And when we get this, there's no incident to take that out of the equation. So we get arrogant Tony. We get, you know, money-hungry Tony. We get, the, we get the Tony who doesn't care as much for Pepper and Happy, who have really pivotal roles in this episode, but aren't, you know, given the chemistry that we associate with, uh, with them and Iron Man in this, in this case. I love how the Wakanda stuff plays into it. I love how Claw comes in earlier. Andy Serkis is so good in this. He doesn't get enough credit. He is so much fun to hear back in this. Um, although I will say, in that Black Panther fight sequence, 
I thought that was going to be uh, T'Chaka. Like he shows up and I was like, right, because T'Challa doesn't get the suit. And oh, and and then no, because I forgot that he takes over in Civil War. So it kind of makes that. But I, but speaking to that, I love, you know, the eventual scene that we do get the sort of Panther sphere, if you want to go between Eric and T'Challa and that thing of like, yeah, you're going down this path and like, cool, you won, but like, you're never going to win. That's the point of you. And the point of Eric is that, yes, he's understandable and yes, he's complex, but he goes about it in such a wrong way that he cannot win with that. And that's why T'Challa's character is so much pro- more propped up in that movie. I will say that, you know, the Thaddeus Ross stuff feels a bit too much, you know, military jargon for me. It's part of the reason why, like, some of the early MCU films when they lean too much into the military aesthetic, I don't quite love. Um, and I wish Shuri got more of a bigger role. Like she's so important in this, in the franchise. And I wish she got more of a presence in this aside from the ending, which is a very cool tease of, as with all of these episodes. Your mention of general Ramonda, uh, who is Angela Bassett's character in the live action black Panther. How, how awesome was that to see? Like how great so was that cool. to see the transition from her, uh, you know, regal wear to, uh, like battle attire. And then she kept that, she kept her head adornment. And that was, uh, that was beautiful to see. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here for this. Uh, one more mention was, um, oh, Killmonger's scars across his body. I think for like every life he's taken, um, are pretty iconic in the live action. Um, and Brandon, if you've, if you've looked into the comics for Killmonger's run or his mention in Black Panther, I'm curious of how they like, how they have that in the comics, if it's like the same style of scars. But, but what I find funny is, um, <laughs> how like we knew we were, I guess not new, but I, I expected to see him shirtless because I figured they were going to show the scars in some way. Um, but it's during his fight with Tony that there's like this mech that makes one swipe and then his shirt just obliterates and it's just gone completely. And I go, oh yeah, so we're not, we're not like ripping or like having little tears and then he takes it off. No, it's just, it's a clean swipe and off. The, clo- the clothes have just uh, <laughs> became evaporated. Uh, and I found that hilarious because I'm like, of course, like, just get up, just get rid of the shirt. It's um, a fan service. It's all right? Marvel just, films. Just get rid of the shirt. <laughs> like for all it, the muscled men, it's I it's found crazy. it funny, Sam. Even uh zombies episode, we're introduced to Bucky. He's like in a shower. Like that's yep. when we saw Bucky <laughs> yep. during zombies. And I was like, okay, there's some good Bucky content. Thank you. Um <laughs> but I, I had to mention that because as I was watching, that was a, a scene where I go, huh. <laughs> because it just it was so out of nowhere. No, yeah, I, 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 totally I really agree. wish that we saw Angela Bassett now in a general role in like the main Black Panther movie that we know and love. Like that was so cool when he turned to her side and was like, "General, like, what do you think?" And I was like, "General." <laughs> so that was really cool. Yeah, I'm ready uh, for rankings. Yes, uh, I, I will actually go first on that. I'll keep the one that I had last week, so I'll still go from bottom to top. I will say one, barely under three, five. And then, yeah, six, four, two. So, you know, six is right in the middle. For me, it's actually six has really booted up to the second place here. So I still love the Doctor Strange episode the most. That's four. So I've got, you know, from most loved, least liked, uh, four, six, three, one, five, two. Sorry, I'm still going to poop on episode two. I just, I still was not a fan of all the references in there for some reason. And I was talking to another friend and he was a huge fan of two as well. And I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I just need to watch it again and see something that I missed. But yeah, I think, I I think the reason for that is because I feel the most emotionally impacted by those top three that I mentioned, four, six, three. Um, And then, yeah, for the, for the other ones, I don't know. I just didn't love them as much. And I think it's just a style thing, you know, but uh, yeah, it's, 
interesting stuff. So how about you, Noah? Thank you. Uh, as we move closer and closer to like the 10 episode count, these are going to start sounding like social security numbers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, um, I'm going to list my top three. So it's going to go five, four, six for me. It goes zombies, Doc Strange. And um, this comes in at six. Uh, we're starting to venture further and further from those earlier episodes. So I'm not as like, you know, uh, I'm not as close to my reactions or like my feelings to what those were. Um, I'm sorry, two is still at the bottom for me. That's uh, what if all the Avengers were, oh, were killed by him, right? Oh, that's three. Three is, sorry, three is kind of like holding it together down at the bottom. Um, but yeah, I, I was impressed by this episode. It, it shot up above others. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been an episode that I think has felt lackluster in terms of, um, you know, what their ambitions are. So, you know, we're continually having material to discuss over what if, because this is a series that is just delivering like conversation topics. So I'm, I'm so ready for um, the series to continue. And I'm glad that we've been keeping up with it on this show. I still love how vastly different our ranks are too. This is always a fun thing to look forward to. <laughs> it, it really is. And it goes towards the creativity of what if that I've been screaming about for two years, which has been really satisfying. And that's going to close our conversation on what if, uh, Brandon, we're going to hand the mic to you so you can hold the stage for a minute. Tell us about uh, these two shows that you've been keeping up with. It is uh, Kid Cosmic Season 2 on Netflix, and the new FX series streaming on Hulu is Why the Last Man. Uh, you've watched a couple episodes. I'm excited to hear what you think about them. Uh, take it away. So I'll get through why relatively quickly, just because it's only, uh, I, I want to talk about just the pilot first and foremost. Um, this is a series that has been in development for years. Um, if you have not read the Brian K. Vaughn, uh, Pia Guerra original comics, they're great uh, from the Vertigo DC brand. Really, really interesting. Basically, the premise is what if every male on Earth died and you have this one guy, Yorick, and his monkey Ampersand, who are the last two male animals on the planet. Uh, and essentially the TV show follows a lot of that. The pilot is essentially what happens right before so it's establishing uh york he's this um he's a struggling uh the struggling magician struggling magic act he's ready to propose to his girlfriend who is a teacher uh and his mom is the uh is one of the cabinet members in the u.s uh played by diane lane so there is that dynamic and she has uh sorry he i should say has a younger sister who is a recovering drug addict slash emt she's having an affair with uh with one of her paramedic aides that becomes a very big thing later on, but I won't spoil it. But basically the whole thing is, you know, establishing the characters, establishing this world, and then every male on Earth dies, uh, seemingly from some kind of plague. Uh, there's, you know, bleeding and guts, and it's very grotesque, but essentially it becomes this chaotic thing where in a matter of, you know, a couple of days, every male on the planet dies, and York is the only one left. Um, and I will simply say, this is really, really good. Um, it, it's a really good start, at least. Um, and I won't spoil too much for the first three episodes, just because uh, we're about to get episode four this week. And hopefully, once the season wraps, we'll all be able to you know, talk about it with you know, ginormous spoilers. Um, I like this a lot. And part of the reason why I like it is because in the comics, it, they utilize the concept really well, but it does kind of become a bit surface level after a while. Because it kind of becomes the aftermath of everything. And I like that with this, we are able to explore the befores and we're able to explore, you know, what leads up to this? What are these characters like? And then once episode one ends, we can get into, oh, great, chaos. And, you know, how do we rebuild and all this? And how does Diane Lane character, you know, deal with essentially this kind of, you know, very topical political uprising within her own, you know, new White House. There's, you know, a conservative sect played by uh, Amber Tamblyn, who's kind of, you know, the daughter of the previous president who passed away. And she is kind of uh, aiming to get power within all of this. 
There is a secret agent who has to go protect York later on, uh, played by, I'm forgetting the actress's name, uh, Ashley Romans, who is excellent in this. Uh, she plays the secret agent tasked with protecting York uh, as, they as they attempt to research what the heck happened to this and why does he survive. And what I love is that they don't put too much pressure on that. I love how they keep the, the stakes on, you know, York and his mom's stories because they are kind of paralleling one another. I love how they're very subtly building the world around it about, you know, how does the world rebuild with, you know, no males and, you know, industries that have for the longest time been reliant on male dominated spheres. And now you have, you know, you have one engineer left who has to deal with, you know, the entire East coast, or you have, you know, one chef left who has to deal with an entire homeless shelter. Like how does that work out? And I like how they're very subtly building that with very clever choices beyond just the fact that the characters are really interesting. So I like this a lot. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Just, just out of curiosity, I know that I will be watching this uh, so that I can have some conversation with you in some future episodes. But how is uh, his name's Ben Schnetzer? How is his hair? How is his character in this series? Like, what is what is York Brown's conflict while he's in the middle of, I mean, being the last man? What can you tell us about his character that that might be that might seem interesting to any listeners? Or you know, what's the draw with when, when it comes to him? The cool thing about York is that he's kind of a loser, like, <laughs> and I mean that genuinely, like he. Like he's, you know, the struggling magician, he's teaching magic class, and then all of a sudden he is, you know, the most important person in the world, essentially. And it kind of puts a mirror to like how, you know, toxic masculinity reframes like male gaze and things like that. But again, Yorick is not important. You know, he's the son of the president, which becomes like a whole thing in like the political side of the story. But as far as just him, like he's just trying to figure this out. There's a whole scene where, you know, he's, he's wandering through the sewers and he meets this, uh, he meets this woman who owns a dry cleaning shop. And the whole thing is just like, how are you alive? And he's like, I wouldn't know if I could tell you. And it's kind of, you know, that that boiling over stress point where you're like, yeah, I wouldn't know either. Like, I'm theorizing as a fan, but I'm identifying with York's, you know, absolute anxiety about all of this. And it, the character does have some degree of anxiety as well. So that kind of plays into it. He's not, you know, the charismatic lead and that, you know, Diane Lane's character is much more of the natural leader. Thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, you're actually up on the next show, too. So what can you tell us about Kid Cosmic? Yes, I will make Kid Cosmic quick because I've been teasing it for weeks and I've been way too excited about it. This is, again, the second season of uh, the Netflix series Kid Cosmic from Craig McCracken, who, if you don't know, you know, Powerpuff Girls, Foster Son for Imaginary Friends, Wander Over Yonder, he's responsible for all of those. Spoilers for season one, I should say, uh, if you have not watched that. That ends with our team of heroes being transported to space. And now they have a diner in space. Um, and... They come into conflict with essentially this planet-killing being called Erodius, which is basically their version of Galactus from Marvel Comics. Uh, and as I mentioned when I talked about uh, Season 2 getting confirmed uh, recently, this is essentially very Marvel-like. Uh, there's these stones of power, which are very akin to the Infinity Stones. Each character has their own. It gets very developed as the season goes on, and I was not expecting certain things. But they essentially come into conflict with this giant you know, planet-killing thing, his sort of disciple, so to speak, who is basically this kind of pathetic fanboy character who just really wants him to destroy things, and it's kind of fun to watch. But also, it's much more about uh, Joe, who is the um, who is the teenage girl of the group, and kind of her coming to terms as the reluctant mentor and the reluctant leader of this group of heroes who are still stranded in space. Like, they have no way of getting back, and they just kind of have to deal with this while it uh, comes about. I really like this. Uh, it's a ton of fun. The art style is very fun to watch the action sequences with. Uh, Joe is a character I was a fan of in the first season. I really love her this season. She is a... Again, she's a moody teenager who has to step up and you know deal with a planet killer, and it's really fun to watch. But at the same time, her dynamic with her mother, who owns the diner that gets transported to space, 
their relationship is really actually really nice to watch and really cute and really uh, well-established. The action sequences, again, are great. There's a lot of really cool new character developments with it. I am a bit disappointed because Joe gets so much of the spotlight and the other characters just kind of sideline to the end. But I have a feeling that with the way the season ends, they will get much more attention in season three, which we are getting. Um, but yeah, overall, if you are a fan of superhero stories, if you're a fan of animation, this is a must-watch. It's so much fun, and I wish I'd seen it when I was a kid. I was actually just looking at the cast list for that, and honestly, it's stacked. I mean, you already teased some of the people who who star in this, but it's just like after seeing them all in one in one go, it's 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 really cool. I mean, I, I know nothing about Kid Cosmic, and I'm I'm living vicariously through you, so I'll I'll have to check it out sometime. And like, do you you kind of already talked about this a bit, but do you have a favorite character overall between both seasons that you feel has been pretty consistent? I. I really do like Joe after this season because I liked her in the first season. I think she comes into so much of her own this season. Uh, kid in the first, it's much more kids because it's the show Kid Cosmic. It's much more kids season in season one. It's much more about his story and his sort of, you know, deep-seated trauma and how he uses actually superheroes to kind of mask that pain. And that's what I find most interesting about season one, actually. Um, but yeah, it's one of those two. And I have a fun uh, question for you, Brandon. Uh, because I've um, I've not touched Kid Cosmic, but um, yes, as Sam says, living vicariously through you and then perhaps even joining you because I'm looking at the cast list now and I see that Greg Griffin is part of this cast list who I know uh, as the voice of Azula from the last Airbender series. As, are you fam- A, are you familiar with her voice, Greg Griffin? Oh, big time. In fact, she actually has a very minor role in this. She plays the uh, mother of the uh, of the infant hero who uh, she she isn't in it that much. But when she is, you're like, oh, it's great. Yeah, I was gonna say that might even be enough for me to go. Hey, let me start this episode, or let me start this, um, let me start this show. Uh, that joined in with your uh, your praise for the show. I know that you have definitely been, uh, you know, uh, shifting in your corner, waiting to talk about Kid Cosmic. So it, it's about time, you know, one of us joins you in the conversation. So you know, we'll check that pilot out. We'll check out that new series. If for no other reason, just because I've heard no one talk about it. It's just one of those Netflix animated shows that just gone under the radar. And I think it's, again, a lot of fun. There is depth to it. It's surprisingly dark at points, especially in its finales. Um, and I did actually, I've got the name of the character. It's Bobby Moynihan voicing uh, a character named Phantos, who if that doesn't tell you an MCU homage, I don't know what will. That's hilarious. Um, ratings? Or do we do ratings for shows? No, huh? Uh, usually at the end. Uh, like if, but I, I'll, I'll do it for Kid Cosmic. I will say an easy eight and a half out of ten. This is better than season one. Wow. It's it's more epic than season one in scale. The jokes are funnier, and I I really wound up enjoying this. And I, I hope people do check it out. And just as far as the Y pilot goes, thumbs up. I'll give it a rating once we finish the season. And when it I'm comes, I'm glad to, to kid- hear it. Oh, Sorry. go ahead, Noah. Sorry. When it comes to Kid Cosmic, is that a full streaming season released like in one day, or is that episodic? Both full seasons are currently up on Netflix right now. And season three is supposedly going to come out early next year. That's awesome. That's great that they're rolling out like that. And no, the only thing I was going to add is I'm happy to hear just from your, your rankings, Brandon, or your rating that like the second season comes back better than ever. Cause I think that shows a lot about, you know, any kind of TV show and um, they kind of learn from not mistakes made, but just learn what vibes with the fans. And then they really carry that through into second seasons. And that's the sign to me uh, of a successful show. So glad to hear that you're really liking it so far. Totally. We're going to move on to Only Murders in the Building, right? I will just give the quick rundown for that. Uh, this is also on Hulu FX. 
uh, created by Steve Martin and John Hoffman. It's been in development for a long time. We're finally getting the uh, first couple episodes for it, dropping weekly. Basically, it tells the story of these two uh, true crime uh, fanatics, one played by Steve Martin, one played by uh, one played by Martin she- Martin Short. I always confuse Martin Short and Martin Sheen. My apologies. Um, they are essentially, respectively, uh, Steve Martin's character is an old uh, 80s crime actor, and uh, Martin, Short- Martin Short's character is a uh, sort of off-Broadway uh uh, off-Broadway theater director has kind of been on hard times. They run into Mabel, who is played by Selena Gomez in the same uh, building, and she is also a true crime fanatic, which winds up coming to a head when someone actually dies in the building. And so the three of them create this podcast to try and you know discover who is behind this. You know, should they be worried? What's the stakes behind this? And where does Mabel's story go into all of this? Sam, I know you've only watched the first episode, so I want to get your take on the pilot. What were you expecting from this, and what'd you think? Yeah, I thought that Selena Gomez was a super weird pick because, I mean, we all know that Martin Short and Steve Martin are like best best friends. Like they come in package deals very often with movies and, and TV shows, comedy shows, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, I'm always happy to see the two of them. And then I hear Selena Gomez and I'm like, how and why? Like it's just because they seem very different. But honestly, I, it's kind of it, it works in really well. And so. I think it's a really cool premise that they all just are huge fans of this one podcast and then something happens in their actual building and they're like, Ooh, let's apply everything we know from listening to these things. It's like, it's kind of the equivalent of when people say I'm a doctor because I watch Grey's Anatomy. And so it's just, it's very relatable and it's fun in that way. And they, the three of them together are really, really, really fun. Um, I, I didn't expect it to be like, it's not a gory movie. It's not like a Saw movie, but I actually didn't expect some of the scenes to be as detailed as they are. So that was kind of interesting, but um, that makes me wonder what's going to come up in the future. Like, and especially if um, they're talking about only murders in the building, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know how many actually happen in the show. And I think that you two will shed light on that since you're a little further in the series than me, but like, I'm wondering how many murders actually happen in the building. Like, is it just this one that they're focusing on first and they carry it through the whole season or are they going to focus on multiple in which move out of that apartment? That ain't good in New York. So, um, but I, otherwise, you know, I, I think, I think it's a really stylized show, lots of fun and I'm excited to see more of it. Do you know how hard it is to find good rentals in New York? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That and the cost of living, uh, literally in every sense of the word. Uh, yeah, terrible. <laughs> cost of living, good. Uh, Noah, going over to you. Uh, first couple of episodes, what do you think? First couple of episodes, I'm like, okay, this is a random, you know, coupling of three. I don't know what a three coupling is, is called. A throuple? Um, a troubling of, you know, uh, Martin Short, Steve Martin, um, love Pink Panther, um, and Selena Gomez. So when I was listing off these three characters, I'm kind of like, okay, random three neighbors all gather around and bond over um, true crime podcast. I have um, Brazos is Steve, is, uh, Steve Martin's character, and that is like, not his not his real name, but that's a character that he played um, for so many years. And it, it's kind of popularized, at least in his in his right but he's an actor who's feeling like the tides of time almost um, almost come into play with, with his own perception of himself. And then we have uh, a off-Broadway, like you said, director who is hard on times when it comes to cash. He's strapped. Um, and then we have Selena Gomez, which I'm like, oh, like this is, this is, you know, and Selena Gomez is how I finished that statement because um, it, it was kind of like a, a pick that's recognizable. You know, this isn't a no name. This is somebody uh, prolific that we are going to definitely get a sense of like, oh, 
you know, we're going to measure their performance because we've, we've seen them before. Um, Wizards of Waverly Place. <laughs> but when it comes to the show, I, I, I can um, relate to all the characters just binging true crime podcasts because I'm a big fan of the podcast called My Favorite Murder. And so the idea that uh, these three strangers were just, you know, they're all paired they're all troubled because of a fire alarm that goes off in their building. And when they all like meet at a restaurant across the way, uh, Selena Gomez's character is looking for Mabel is looking for uh, a seat, doesn't have one. So Martin short kind of like gestures for her to come over and join them on solving the ongoing investigation. Um, that is uh, that that's what they're listening to. So I think the show surprised me because um, it's centering around a podcast Um you know, I, I've seen a little bit of that, like in Truth Be Told, that's Octavia Spencer's show on Apple TV. Um, but this one does it so not so seriously. This is a comedy. And so Steve Martin and Martin Short are hilarious in it. Selena Gomez takes on more of the role that is, um, you know, she has she plays a character that has more layers, especially when it comes to who the victims are in the building, because she has a past. She has a history uh, that is connected to some of the uh, some of the victims inside the building, which, Sam, um, is kind of like the reveal at the end of the first episode. So I'm sure you're aware of that. But as the episodes uh, progress, we're just getting little little bits and pieces of where of where it's going. Secondly, I'd like to mention that the uh, format of the show works so well for me because it is so short. These episodes are 33 minutes long and it feels like a breath of relief because we've been getting nothing but like uh, 55 minute shows. Um, I'm watching American Horror Story right now, whose latest episode was an hour and four minutes. And I'm getting a little exhausted because I kind of want to sit down and take in, take in an episode of a story. I mean, I know I can stop myself mid through mid through an episode, but I really just want to get that beginning and end piece of plot and then leave. Like, like, I'm not always ready for that one hour commitment that I have become accustomed to because of all these other shows that are have one hour run times. Uh, this show's only like 33 minutes uh, a bite. And that's so easy for us to watch. You know, we had to watch three episodes before recording this and uh, knocking that out in an evening was was simple. Um, and because this show's so fun to watch, I almost get like. Um, I was going to say Blue's Clues, but I meant Scooby-Doo vibes from these three because they're so wacky and goofy that um, even if they're not saying a joke, it's just in their um, it's it's in how they move around each other. It's um, all their character choices uh, when it comes to like Martin Schwartz's body movement, like he's nailed his character down. And uh, these three are definitely worth the following um, hearing them be confused over uh mabel's like frustration with them it's just hilarious to me because they're coming from two different worlds and seeing that uh realized is just just totally believable i think i think that this is stellar um and the fact that it's only taking place in the building i think really focuses the show um so that way we're not wondering you know why aren't they becoming like you know across the city um investigators for all these murders but because of mabel's tie uh I think it's it's focused enough for me to just feel like I'm getting only what I need and it's not wasting my time. So I love I love a show that can that can manage both. Um and that's all. I think I'm I'm definitely uh gonna keep watching these new episodes. We're three episodes in, but that's not to say there's only three. Uh I believe there are uh I couldn't tell you how many episodes are out right now, but um we'll probably be working on finishing the series so that way we can talk to you about how it wraps up by the next time we meet. Yeah, episode six drops this week, and I believe it's going to also be 10 episodes. Never mind. As we do. Um, 
I will say nothing I'm about to say meets Steve Martin's description for what the show is supposed to be, which was essentially going to be three grumpy men solving murders only in their building because they didn't want to leave their building because they're lazy. And I think that is the funniest idea, but that's not what the show is. It's actually way more interesting, I think. Um, if you had told me that Selena Gomez's character was going to have the most interesting arc so far, I would have never believed you. Um, and also, if there is ever a reason to point to a potential Wizards of Waverly Place reunion, uh, she has all of Alex Russo's tendencies still locked down. With this. Like, Mabel and Alex are very similar characters. Um, and I, I love the little breadcrumbs we have with that, but so much of it is that weird, again, and it's weird, that kind of chemistry that we get between she, uh, between Short, Martin, and Gomez. And their back and forth is just so fascinating to watch. You know, like... I, you haven't gotten to episode three yet, Sam, but they're like, there's like this little brief scene where, you know, Steve Martin is playing a concertina to like play like the intro music. And Selena, and Selena Gomez's character is just looking just like, was I supposed to be entertained by that? And it's so perfect. And again, like the jokes are funny. Like they, they come really plentiful, but the murder stuff is actually still really interesting. It knows how to craft a compelling mystery. Um, there are some cool guest stars in there, obviously, which we'll get into spoiling. We'll spoil them at the end. But the weird three-way chemistry, you know, really good jokes and a really good murder setup somehow this shouldn't work and yet it really does and i've really been pleasantly surprised by it uh one thing to add about uh this show is just that um because of the you know this this follows the same structure as how to get away with murder as big little lies where you're um given short clips as to like what happens at the end of the series and it's going to be another murder it's a, it's another murder or so it seems when you watch the pilot when you watch the first episode I think that um, there's reason why that works so much. Like we're all so invested because we, we are tied to that um, that image that we see at the very beginning, which is of the end. So we're going to commit ourselves to it. That being said, there has been times in the show where I think the script gets so vague because it doesn't want to tell us like it wants to tease like, um, well, you know, you shouldn't have done that that night. And, I, and in my head, I'm just like, that's so, you know, they're almost making it too ambiguous to where, we have to keep watching it. And I think that that when I caught it, it, it irked me. Um, but there are so many pluses to this show, which I want to mention just one more. Um, but that was my one negative. Uh, another plus for me is uh, Short's character is a director. <laughs> so as they're filming this podcast, while they'll be going through uh, different uh, interviews, different um, like scene investigations, and they have no problem breaking laws. Um, but one of their like, short's role is to be the direct like they're his their vocal director so when they deliver a line it could be as genuine as the moment and he'll be like now now give it to me with a little more um poise <laughs> and i just find that so hilarious because the director wants to do nothing more than just bring out the most from his performers whereas none of these people are performers they're all just you know the people working on the podcast with you but he he expects so much out of them and of the other characters in the world that i think uh being a thespian myself i just love to see it it makes me just cackle in my seat i, I, I will add hear... oh go ahead no sorry go ahead go ahead no no i was just gonna say that i i love to hear that there are even more iconic scenes that are coming up because you could tell like right from the pilot episode that they just have this amazing chemistry that's between the three of them. And my favorite scene from like that first episode was the elevator and they all realized the garbage bag. That's all I'm going to say. And that was just hilarious for me. That one stood out because it's like, that says a lot about each of their characters and it, it was really fun to see that. So I'm glad to hear there are more dynamics similar to that. I was just going to add the point of like, 
going to Noah's thing about, you know, how Mabel's arc is a little is still a little bit vague and how the script can be a bit vague. I think this works for this because of the runtime. Because like you mentioned, like if this was, you know, 45 to 50 minute episodes and we were getting all of those teases, I don't think it would have worked. But I think because it's so concise, it, it reminds me a bit of like what Gravity Falls was doing in its heyday, where it, it was able to give you teases, but be so concise with its storytelling that you didn't mind waiting another week or you didn't mind waiting for that kind of thing. And I will simply add that, you know, as far as like iconic scenes go, like I won't spoil it, but there's a thing in episode three with, you know, Martin Short's character in a sort of like audition lineup, if you want to call it that. And the second that happened, I thought to myself, this is going to blow up in his face because eventually we're going to get the point where, you know, Steve Martin's Lynn Gomez's character going to go like, this is real. Like people are dying. Like we're going to get that eventually. But I love that for now, we're just getting like all of the nonsense that, you know, Short's character gets to deliver. And it is nonsense. It's so great. I, I get such a fun, I had such a fun time watching this. Totally. We are going to move on then to, drum roll please, directorial debuts. Uh, this is the segment of the show where we take a director's first feature, we break it down, we review it, we talk about their style. It's a lot of fun. We've talked about, you know, Spike Lee, and we've talked about Tim Burton, we've talked about uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood just last week. Uh, this week is Alfonso Cuaron's first movie, uh, Solo con tu pareja. Uh, from 1991, uh, this was his first movie, actually funded primarily by the government of Mexico. Uh, fun fact, this was actually not meant to be funded at all. And then one of the films dropped out during the, I guess, the federal film competition they were doing. And Alfonso Cuaron got the funding for it. Uh, basically, it centers around uh, this kind of sleazy womanizer uh, marketing guy named, I kid you not, Tomas Tomas is the character's name. Uh, name so nice you said it twice. Uh, played by uh, Daniel uh, Jimenez Cacho. Again, he's kind of this, you know, womanizing guy. He sleeps around with everyone and it doesn't really work well for him. And it really doesn't work well when he meets uh, this nurse who he really kind of, you know, uh, does not treat well. She essentially tries to play a practical joke on him by changing his blood test because he's been uh, sick for a long while. Essentially changes his blood test to where he tests positive for AIDS. And he kind of goes through the story with this and it's kind of reconciling with that and, you know, still going about these ways and falling into these toxic cycles, but also not knowing that he may or may not have AIDS. Uh, at the same time, he forms a bit of a relationship with a woman named Carissa, played by Claudia Ramirez, who is this uh, flight attendant uh, who is in a relationship at the time, but he has absolutely infatuated her. It's very kind of, you know, Scorsese taxi driver style. We'll get to those comparisons in just a minute. Uh, Noah, I wanted to get to you uh, first. What has been your experience with uh, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, filmography? Obviously, with things like you know Harry Potter and Prisoner of Azkaban and Roma and you know countless other projects, where were you going in with this, and what did you? What were your general thoughts on this first effort? Uh, going into this, you know, the previous segments of directorial debut has have all been um, English films, so I knew that this one was going to be our first um, subtitled film, our first foreign film uh, from a director who. I thought I didn't know, but upon looking up uh, the director, Alfonso Cuaron is how I'm going to say his name. Um, after looking up his credits, I was amazed to find out that this is the same. This is the same director as like you say, Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban, Children of Men, Gravity. And I'm mentioning those because those are all standout films for me. Uh, the first time I saw Children of Men, I was kind of blown away. And I love uh, Clive Owen, uh, Julianne Moore. Like that one was uh, very just like emotional and a, an adventure, like a, a ride, if I've ever heard one. Um, and then uh, the awarded um, Roma, which actually I have not got around to seeing. So, um, so what going into Solo con tu pareja, it was um, 
I hadn't looked up anything. I hadn't watched a trailer. I read the short description that was available on Amazon Prime. This is streaming on Amazon Prime. And um, I was like, okay, like I'm ready for an art house comedy. Let's see how funny it is. And I'll admit, as soon as it started, I did question like some of the, uh, I guess, like cinematography choices. But then I got used to it. And then I kind of like appreciated that it looked different enough for me to be, for me to hopefully recognize like future projects. Um, If I think back to like Harry Potter and Prisoner of Azkaban, I don't think it was as stylistic to like call him out. But um, at least in this project, and then I'm going to go back and watch um, Roma. I want to see if I can get some of those pieces that I got from this film. Um, So that being said, having watched it, I think, you know, Aside from the fact that the, the main character is kind of just a total ass and you don't really want to support him, he's it's hilarious to see somebody who's trying to juggle more than they can handle do it. I'm not going to say smoothly because he is kind of a wreck. Like he's like a tornado of like things falling into place for him. But um, I, I like the. I like seeing that, and especially in a comedy like this where he's balancing two lovers at the same time on the same night. Um, it's a feat that is done only that is performed well only because of the shared balcony space or the shared, um, you know, like building ledge that he uh, is traveling in between. Um, but this film isn't supposed to be super, although it's not supposed to be super uh, believable because of like the, I guess, like the naive, naive, naive nature of some of our characters. It's a shame that centering around like an AIDS diagnosis, he immediately jumped to like, a suicide, like a suicidal perspective. Um, that was my problem with it. And then also just like how sexualized the women are in this movie. It was a little uncomfortable just to see him like watching the stewardess character through her window through, throughout the times that he would pass back and forth. Um, I will say though, it was hilarious that when they finally, when it finally showed us what he was seeing through the window, I was expecting like something like something uh, of course, sexual in nature, but then we got her like almost modeling, like practicing with the audio cues because she's a flight attendant. Um, all of the, like, you know, point to the exits, you know, receive your breathing mask as they fall below. And I don't know if that was supposed to be funny, but it, it made me laugh like so hard because it was just seeing somebody take, um, you know, a regular job assignment, which I don't, which I wouldn't expect them to rehearse um, any flight attendant to rehearse, but then seeing that happen um, and him be so enamored by it uh, actually played as a very funny moment for me. Let's let's start some debate. Uh, Sam, what did you think about the film? How did you uh, open up to his work? How did you like watching it? I found the movie kind of interesting and um, there were parts of it that I found genuinely funny. And I think it's because most of my comedy that I like is like slapstick humor. And so there were a couple of moments where it was genuinely funny for me. Like, like if you've seen uh, this movie, there's a scene where he swaps bags when he's talking to the flight attendant. And that one to me was hilarious. I, I don't know why for me, that was like one of the funniest moments of the film. <laughs> and, and I think it's because I saw it coming and I'm like, Oh, that's not the right bag. Is it? And then we, we see it and it's such a short moment, which Honestly, it doesn't do a lot for the plot, but it just adds to the fact that it's a comedy. And I don't know, like, it's such a small and significant scene. But that's what I liked the most about this film were some of the small, seemingly insignificant scenes. And to me, they were the funniest. Um, and so otherwise, I felt like this was 
really a dark comedy in a way because it kind of like similar reasons that you mentioned Noah a lot of points in the movie didn't really sit well for me so overall I didn't really like Solo con tu pareja um and so it's it's because of the fact that yeah he basically falls in love with this girl because he sees her through a window and that's kind of creepy because he's already moving between two women since he's a womanizer and it's just like like to me that didn't sit really well and I I wasn't really believing it either because it's like of course he likes all these women he's a womanizer and seemingly doesn't seem to care about the women he's so far been with and now we're just going to believe all of a sudden he's in love with this one I'm kind of like the doctor in this movie where it's like oh yeah right Romeo like good luck with that sure you love her great Um, but then you know we we see that no this is a little different and i think to your point that you mentioned Noah, it's really interesting that he sees her not doing anything really sexual but more like oh she has a job and she's practicing a routine and it's not sexualized to in, in a way that it could have been compared to the rest of the tone of this movie and so looking back on it now that is pretty significant that he actually falls in love with her not because of what what she is physically but yeah i didn't like the way how women were kind of you know sexualized in that way in this movie i don't think that really aged well to you know where media is at this point right now um but i do really appreciate um alfonso coron's um just his his style in general because funny enough actually the harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban that one's my favorite harry potter movie of all time and i think it's because it introduced me to some of my favorite characters and um you know i just thought the style was really nice because that's when you start to see harry potter get really dark you start to see the dark ages for them and i mean that in a good way like the tones get darker um but between that and children of men amazing movie too and and same with roma roma i actually did end up seeing and um I see similar um, aesthetics of like, like nationalism, if that makes sense for anybody who might be like Hispanic or uh, of Mexican descent. And so it's just like, you know, I, I kind of see that in both Solo con tu pareja and Roma, because I think um, Alfonso does a really great job with movies like that, because, you know, no better way to tell a story than kind of applying some of your own experiences and things like that. And so I just um, I could kind of see similarities in in his directing between the two with Roma and Solo. Um, but overall, I, I wasn't really a huge fan of the movie for how some of the things a, don't really age well especially if somebody is you know experiencing AIDS like they're they going through that diagnosis and I, I feel like it's kind of a damper that like oh yeah his immediate thought is suicide like that's just that's kind of an extreme and the suicide in a way it's a very serious topic and it's very um it, it's really set up on a pedestal for comedic effect in a way and and it's silly so to me it just kind of dampens the seriousness of it but is the point with um that's the point with dark comedies you know like you just kind of take a dark topic make some kind of comedic effect with it and and carry it from there but yeah just long story short i I thought it was just interesting to see some of his early work considering he has this wide breadth of range um when it comes to the movies he's directed it's a very eclectic mix i really just wanted to mention that uh the, the character outside of his like womanizing escapades uh, I I found uh, likable. I found like hilarious. I found funny. He his his little shticks that he has. For one, he wakes up in the morning and when he grabs his morning paper, he almost like like jogs and like energizes himself up because he lives on maybe like the fifth floor or something like that. And what he what he 
what he likes to do every morning is this, this man like loves risk. He loves living on the edge. So he will strip naked and only have his shoes on sprint downstairs immediately. Um, and the whole time you're thinking like, are any, is anybody going to come out? Is anybody going to see this man, like this nude man picking up his paper and then running all the way back upstairs just to get that thrill, that joy ride. I found that to be, uh, like a funny trait in him. And also when he needs to call in sick to work, he needs to see like a physical thermostat burning, like his temperature. So he'll put it up against a lamp. And I, I found little moments like that where we're only spending alone time with his character for me to find him. To, I found him funny. I found him likable. It was just in how he, you know, treated the characters around him that I was like, this dude is not somebody like I want to watch for another film. Um, but you know, as, as of alone, as a solo character, um, there were pieces of him that I still found enjoyable in the movie. Uh, but that was just something I wanted to add. So, uh, Brandon. Let me put this out there. Alfonso Cuaron is one of my favorite directors. I love almost all of his, like, Children of Men, as you already mentioned, is completely underrated. Itumama Tamien is wonderful. Gravity was my favorite movie of 2013. I think it's a visual marvel. And he basically, you know, saved, I wouldn't say saved, but reinstigated what Harry Potter was. You know, I, and I, the fun, I, side tangent, I hate the fact there's no interviews about this. Like, he rarely talks about this movie. Like, he'll always talk about Roma, he'll always talk about Gravity, but I keep wanting to find, like, him, like, diving deep into, like, how did you get attached to Harry Potter? Because on paper, it doesn't really make a ton of sense, and then once you dive into the movie, it's like, oh, he was perfect for this. This is my way to saying, like, I don't like this movie. <laughs> um, I'm totally with you, Sam. This is this is not good. And it's kind of a shame, because it has the pieces to be that. Um, and I don't want to be like, you know, a modern film style. I'm just like, I only know movies in like past five years. But like, it gave me heavy Uncut Gems vibes of, you know, this very kind of, you know, this very sleazy character who thinks he can do everything, who gets in way over his head, but who doesn't have, you know, the resources to be able to do it. Or if he does have the resources, he completely flaunts it every time. But unlike Uncut Gems, which I also don't love, but at least that movie has, you know, the pacing to it and the score to it and this kind of, you know, frantic you know bubbling up energy to it this i never really felt that quran is clearly trying to make this you know risque and very kind of you know avant-garde in terms of con and you can tell by those things like those quotes that pop up like every act or like the imagery of like you know the green wallpaper or the cones and everything and it's trying to be i think smarter than it is and credit to emmanuel lubeski who has filmed who has uh, shot most of his movies i believe a cinematographer who gets a lot of like really cool shot combinations out of this there are some really cool images there um and i do I think there's something to be said about Tomas as a character who, you know, is under so much stress and how that kind of, you know, plays into his character and how that kind of only feeds into his ego more. I think there is something interesting there. But again, like to Sam's point, he's just so unlikable. And even when he is likable, it's it seems to be only at the benefit of other characters' misery, like whether it's his doctor or whether it's, you know, his doctor's wife, who, spoiler, apparently he has an affair with, and that only detracts from both characters even more. That's not even going into, you know, this film's approach to women in general, which, again, like, credit to the Clarissa thing, like, at least she's not overly sexualized to a degree. She is kind of part of the jokes to some degree. But by the end of it, it is still a sexual affection that still feels mostly one-sided. And by the end of it, it just feels like, this is going into places that it doesn't deserve to go. Like it doesn't deserve to have that affection yet beyond the fact of, you know, it's very questionable approach of AIDS. I get it. It was 30 years ago. I get the AIDS epidemic was a very different thing back then, but at the same time, there was a respectful way of doing this. There were movies at the time that were doing that. And Alfonso Cuarón just seems to be playing it as a joke and as a really dark twisted joke. And I really don't think it works. So yeah, like as much as I love his other projects and as much as I will forever respect the guy as a filmmaker, 
this is easily on the bottom of my list. Like it's enjoyable to a degree. It's it's a cool time capsule, much like uh, She's Gotta Have It was that we talked about a few weeks ago. But I think that film is way more interesting, way more consistent, and frankly, way less offensive. I thought I had something, Brandon, but you're hitting all the na- you're hitting all the points like with a hammer. So yeah, congratulations on those excellent points. <laughs> um, why, don't, why don't we toss to some ratings? Uh, I don't mind taking the lead on this. Solo Coco Pareja. This was for me. I would only ever revisit this because of that avant-garde style that we received from him that I think is immediately, I can't say identifiable because I didn't, because I don't know of his work like that, but it at least was stylistic enough for me to be like, damn, like, let me, this was enough for me to go, let me Google the director after this, because it's more than just the performances. It's more than just the writing, of course. Um, but he does, he is credited on the screenplay. I, I appreciated his uh, director's take on that. So I'm going to give this, you know, I wouldn't revisit it other, other except for those things. So I'm going to give this, um, it can take a five for me. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go a bit lower. I'm going four and a half. Um, and again, that, that feels really slimy. Because there are parts of this, especially aesthetic wise, where I'm like, oh, that's where, you know, Roma leads. And that's where like that shot from gravity comes from. Like, I can see those things in there, although it's questionable, like how much of that is Alfonso and how much of that is Emmanuel Lubezki. I don't know. I know there are people out there who like these stories about, you know, really dark characters who do really dark things and just don't have to have any redemption for it. And that's fine, like to each their own. I don't love that approach and I don't think it's handled super well here. Beyond the fact that I just, it, you know, it's funny to a degree, but it doesn't hold up nearly as well as it should. So a cool time capsule, not much else. I'm kind of on the the similar track as Brandon here. I'm, I'm more of like a four on this because, yeah, parts, like I mentioned, genuinely funny, did appreciate it. It's just not my thing. I, I don't think it was tastefully approached, you know, like the topics and everything. I think it was too dark that it didn't really work. Um, so, yeah, mine mine's basically a four as well. But like like everybody here, I also still really love Alfonso Cuaron's um, work. It's just this one to me was kind of a mess. And that kind of wraps our directorial debut for this week. Um, I do want to take a second and just have a conversation with you both um, on how you felt this segment has really like either shaped your perspective around some of these directors or, you know, visiting these debuts. How has that felt for you? Because I want some of your perspective over how you've um, regarded this segment, uh, whether you've seen the original works of these directors or this is your first time visiting them. Um, how have you felt? So Sam, if you could answer that question first, um, how have you liked uh, recording this segment so far? Honestly, this has been really fun. And honestly, this is also the uh, brainchild of Brandon King here, our host and friend. Um, and so honestly, this has really helped a lot because, uh, you know, I, it, it keeps me accountable to keep up with how some of our directors came to be, you know, and it's been really fun to kind of see those styles uh, worked into their earliest work and then you could see similarities in like some of their most current works now um so for me i think the one that was most interesting was the um love and basketball one because i really did not know much about the director and it was just really nice to see some work of hers because now i'm really motivated to see everything else that she has to, to offer so i just really am interested in seeing more on gina prince bythewood's um you know like work because i was so unfamiliar with it other than secret life of bees uh so yeah i, I think it's been really fun and i can't wait to see what our next one will be so uh, how about you noah i think this has really opened my eyes to uh, earlier works from directors who I was already familiar with. Um, so when we talk about um, 
my my interest in film at least while i was growing up I've, i was always like an actor person i was always like oh my gosh like only paying attention to who the lead actor was then completely forming um an opinion not on the film but on like the actor's performance and believing that that represented the film but um i've changed that many years ago and i've started to dive more into like directors and i appreciate probably writing credits the most now as well as like an editing credit um mike flanagan uh edits some of his film and i always like i think that that's so commendable. Um, but I love this segment because I get to learn things like, Hey, remember that Harry Potter film that you loved as a kid? Like turns out it's from this amazing director who is now, uh, so awarded and we get to visit his debut with, um, this solo con tu pareja. Um, same goes for Gina Prince Bythewood. Um, same goes for Spike Lee. I think I've enjoyed Spike Lee's, uh, she's got to have it the most from these, uh, debuts. Um, but the further and further we get along with these, the more and more I feel, um, just well-rounded with some of my film knowledge, because these are, these are uh, in, in some cases, classic classics. Um, we're talking about Tim Burton's Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Um, and I'm happy that it's, it's either a re- returned me to some of these things that I was unaware belonged to these esteemed directors. Um, and also just like, if this is my first time taking it in, just like she's got to have it. Um, I'm happy to do it in this space where we can have a conversation about it and we can kind of like just tear it apart and then appreciate the director for all their future work. Um, Brandon, how do you feel? Yeah, I don't want to take too much credit for it because again, like my ideas only go so far as these two will accept them. So thank you guys for, you know, flattering my ego to that extent. Um, I, the reason like I thought this was an interesting thing to tackle on the podcast was because I think so often we approach directors as icons and we approach artists as icons and I like the idea of, you know, dissecting them down to, you know, human level for as pretentious as that sounds. And I think the most human you get as, you know, either a filmmaker or an artist is one of your first projects. Like, what do you do when you're Alfonso Cuaron and you're someone fresh out of film school and you have this idea? What do you do with it? Like, how do you get from there to, you know, Harry Potter? Or how do you get from, you know, she's got to have it to, you know, Defy Blood? It's like, how does that happen? And especially with older directors who I hope to tackle, like, I want to tackle, you know, City Limit at some point. I want to tackle, you know, Victor Fleming at some point. Like, these directors with, you know, 50-plus projects to them, like, what was that first one they did? And why was that, you know, either forgotten or or was it iconic? Like, we'll probably talk about, you know, Greta Gerwig at some point. We'll talk about Lady Bird. That's an iconic movie from the first one. So I'm, I've always been fascinated by the idea of firsts and, like, where do you start out from? Especially if you are, you know, someone like a Martin Scorsese or a Spike Lee or anyone like that who has become such an icon to film fans and to filmmakers. And I wanted that to be a thing. And this is, I think, become really rewarding to talk with you guys about it because, you know, we've all approached these filmographies with very different uh, respectabilities. And like, for me, I had never seen any of these movies. Like I love Tim Burton. I love Pee Wee, but I've never seen Big Adventure. I love Gina Prince-Bythewood, but I had never seen this. So it gives me and I think all of us an opportunity to kind of dissect these filmmakers' styles while adding to our own, you know, our own criterion collection, so to speak, of like film knowledge, because I think so often it gets, you know, muddled in new releases and, you know, what are you know, our comfort favorites and like, this isn't that. So I hope it to be more than that. Uh, we are going to wrap it up for today. Uh, thank you guys again so much for tuning in to episode five. We've made it to five episodes. We're essentially a mini series now. Thank you all so much for uh, once again joining us. Listen, while we have you here, just uh, we do have social media outlets right now, Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. Go follow us there, as well as Facebook at Plot Devices Podcast. You can follow us over on there. All of these episodes will be available uh, Sunday, late afternoons, evenings, depending on when I finish them up. 
uh, on our Spotify page at Plot Devices as well. Apple Podcast is a little bit slow right now. We should have that up by this week. If so, just again, follow our social media feeds and we will deliver that to, as, uh, deliver that to you guys as well. I want to thank uh, one of my co-hosts for today. Of course, Samantha Corvaya. Sam, tell the people where they can find you and what you've got going on in your life. Um, what do I have going on in my life? Um, I'm not sure if I have any reviews at the moment for next week. I know that I did RSVP for Many Saints of Newark, so I'm very excited about that. But the screener isn't until... Um, about two weeks from now. So uh, to be uh, continued about that. Um, but otherwise, you know, you could catch reviews like that on uh, Odyssey online. Uh, you could find all of our reviews actually there, including mine, but um, you could otherwise follow me in any updates on uh, Twitter at S underscore Inkravaya and on Instagram at Sam, I am five twenty. So yeah, feel free to follow me on there and, and then you'll see what else, uh, what other shenanigans I get up to. <laughs> Our third for today, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, where can people find you online and where you got going on in your life? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the name that I've continually promised to change and I have not thought of a better one, but it's JSY uh, Noah, spelled with a K. You'll see it on our pod description if you go there. Um, I actually do not have any reviews in the works at the moment. Um, I am uh, awaiting two weeks from now. I will be a part of the no time to die screening. So I cannot wait to talk to you both about that, Uh, but that'll be two episodes from now. So in this next week, I'm keeping it, I'm keeping it easy. Um, Got some uh, real life, um, real life work that I'm working on right now. I'm part of a a musical production of the lightning thief. So I can't wait to get to work on that. Uh, But that kind of slows down the movie stuff uh, up until that no time to die screening. So um, follow me on Twitter. I talk about video games, talk about movies. I talk about, a bunch of just things in between my day um and yeah thank you for tuning in you guys can find me on uh, twitter and instagram at the movie king 45 that's twitter and instagram at the movie king 45 and as well you know check out my reviews on asu odyssey as well i have my uh, eyes of tammy fake review coming out hopefully this weekend as well as next week uh dear evan hansen which i'll be covering for asu odyssey as well so tune in for that uh, with that being said, uh, we are going to wrap up episode five for today. Hopefully by the end of this, you're hearing our new outro music. If not, I apologize. We'll get it soon. <laughs> I'm a very indecisive man. Um, from myself, from Samantha and Corvaya, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>